Welcome everyone to the City of Goleta City Council meeting of February 6th. This is our closed session. Um, Mayor Perotti is joining us remotely. Um, can we have the uh, roll call? Yes. Uh, Councilmember Kiriako? Here. Councilmember Kasdan? Here. Councilmember Richards? Here. Mayor Brentepor Reyes Martin? Here. And Mayor Perotti? I'm here. Great. Is there any uh, public comment on closed session items? I do not have any public speakers, and there are no members of the public on the line. Thank you, and I think then our city attorney will read us into closed session. Thank you, Mayor Pro Tem. Um, and before I do, I just note that Mayor Perotti is joining remotely under AB 2449 because she um, is ill and doesn't want to spread it around. So um, with that, we, will, we can convene in closed session pursuant to the two items listed on the agenda. Uh, for anticipated litigation, there is one potential case to discuss in conference with labor negotiators um, with the agency-designated representative as listed on the agenda. Thank you. We will adjourn to closed session. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the City Council meeting of the City of Goleta for February 6th. Uh, Mayor Paula Perotti is joining us remotely, so I will be running the meeting tonight, so if you'll please bear with me as my first time um, as Mayor Pro Tem. Um, we will start with the Pledge of Allegiance. Everyone will please stand. And one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The clerk will please call roll. Councilmember Richards? Here. Councilmember Kiriako? Here. Councilmember Kasdan? Here. Mayor Pro Tempore Reyes Martin? Here. And Mayor Perotti? Here, and I'd just like to let everyone know I'm I'm um, remote this evening. I'm not feeling well, and I was in direct um, um, uh, contact with someone that has COVID, uh, so I thought it'd be uh, safer to be home there. I also want to let you know there's no one in the room with me over 18, and I will keep my video on and my sound on the whole time. Thank you. And thank you, Mayor Pro Tem. Thank you. Um, do we have a report from closed session? Thank you, Mayor Pro Tem. The City Council convened in closed session pursuant to the two items listed on the closed session agenda. There was no public comment. Uh, the City Council recessed from closed session at 527 p.m. and no reportable action was taken on either item. Thank you. That takes us to our public forum. Uh, this is the time for the public to have an opportunity to comment on any Anything that is not on our agenda this evening, uh, do we have any speakers for public comment? Yes, Mayor Pro Tempore, we have four speaker slips, and if there are any members of the Zoom webinar who wish to speak, please raise your hand. I will call on you. Our first <laughs> speaker for public forum is Richard Foster. Try not to say anything that would offend somebody under 18, but uh, I want to thank uh, all the city staff members who came out last Saturday to Brandon School. Uh, I wish we had more people from our community out, but it was nice to have one out in the Allen Heights area. 
I'm sure they would have had other things they'd rather do on a Saturday morning than sit there, especially uh, public works folks who are trying to get ready for this storm. I'm glad we got through the storm. I saw they put up a lot of good signage around town, and so kudos to them for that. Uh, I'm sure by now you know that our roads are a pathetic mess. They're crumbling under the rain. And my question is, when are you going to do something about it? And by you, I mean this council. You set the spending priorities. For too long, you've chased designer projects while the city crumbles. Saying the roads will have a $9 million deficit every year for the next decade is not a plan. Give Public Works the money they need to do the job. Last May, Debbie Tellerico, who was uh, the contract paving woman for a while, she said they needed $12 million last year just to keep up. And you gave them, what, five and a half, five something, and then took away what sales tax money was going to go towards helping offset it this year. You got to give them the money, give them the money they need to do it. Um, Councilmember Kasdan suggested last time or time before that we borrow the money to play catch up on it. It's, it's not the worst idea in the world because the, the decay rate is such that you're going to need to come up with some big money someplace. Personally, I'd say, like, screw the train station. It's the drop-in center for homeless people. Take that money and use it. But you've got to come up with a better plan than just we're going to keep building up bigger and bigger deficits. And you set the budget. Staff can only do what you give them the money to do. And overall, it's got to be frustrating to be putting cold patch in a hole after hole after hole when you really need, know that the road needs redoing. Thank you. Our next public speaker is Santiago Campos, followed by Michael Baker. Mayor Pro Temp and Council Members. I am raising concerns on recent as well as past events of our storms that we are having in the local areas. We are in the area of South Kellogg Avenue and School Bus Lane and we have been having reoccurring problems with flooding down in this area. As a business owner, I have experienced reoccurring property damage from the floodwaters and expect to bear the financial burdens of remedying the damage caused by the failure of the city rectifying the problem. It, I have attached pictures, if you would like to pass these around, of the damage caused by these and injury as well to other business owners in the area. The neighboring businesses at the time coincidentally, or in other business owners sustained a minor injury during this storm and this event, as well as other events as I've seen from 2017 to this point. All person and businesses in the area are affected by the lack of drainage. All other businesses around us and above us from the areas of Thornwood, Pine, and of course School Bus Lane have raised their areas causing all the watershed to flood, flow and flood in our area which there is no drainage whatsoever at the bottom of Kellogg, period. Um, as of this point right now, we've got so much damage going on down there. None of us can barely, or a lot of us have to close up because of it. Um, trying to see if there's anything that the public or the council can do for this. We were told that there is with what's going to happen with the new project down there, mm -hmm. some sort of repair, but we haven't seen any prior or any kind of way of seeing how the additional water coming from all these raised businesses in the area. So um, 
I'm trying to see what can be done to rectify these problems. I've got the pictures of where the water's coming from, how much the areas are raised around us, and what we are having to deal with when this happens. So this is what I'm trying to bring to this. I hope something becomes of this because we're tired of losing hours, um, countless hours, lots of revenue. We have no way to take care of ourselves after we have to deal with this. We lose days. So that is pretty much it. Can I pass these around? Where do I give them to? Yes, and thank you for your comments. You know, because it's in public comment, we're not able to have a have a discussion because it's not on our agenda. But thank you, and I believe we can ask someone from staff to get in contact. Yeah. Our next public speaker is Michael Baker. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Michael Baker, uh, CEO, United Boys and Girls Clubs. Good to see you, Mayor Perotti, from home. Uh, I just wanted to uh, thank each and every one of you for your continued support of our organization. I want to give a special shout out to the city, uh, city staff uh, for helping us significantly uh, prior to the heavy rains. Uh, we had some major uh, issues around the building. It's actually on the, the, the land, city land. So the uh, major, major sewage issues that we were having and uh, got that addressed, thank goodness. Uh, but I just want to give a big shout out to the staff for stepping up and helping out with that. It was a huge help. And, Thankfully, we got it done just in the nick of time uh, for, for the kids to be able to be back in the facilities. And also want to give a, a shout out. I do this each time, but it's it's um, it's always um, humbling for me as the CEO of a youth organization when you go to a city council meeting and you have former club kids sitting on the council. And I know he's getting embarrassed by it, but I don't care. Uh, but uh, James Cariaco is a club kid, and we are very proud of you and the work that you're doing. And I uh, want to encourage each and every one of you, when you have a chance, to please come down. I know Jaime is also a club kid from our Galita Club as well. So thank you for all your service as well. But our, all of our um, clubs, including obviously the Galita Club, I encourage each and every one of you to come down and take a look around. If you haven't been to one recently, we'd love to give you a tour. Uh, and that's open to the entire public as well. If you're interested in taking a tour, please reach out to me. And uh, again, thank you all for your continued support. Thank you. Thank you. And our final public speaker for uh, public forum is Roman Bratiak. Thank you so much for pronouncing my name correctly. Very much appreciated. Um, well, I want to start off and uh, just commend the staff for all the hard work that they've put in to address the issues that I'm sure have arisen as a result of the heavy rains that we've just experienced, plus the previous storms as well. Um, and I also want to share my appreciation for programs such as Beautify Goleta, the Adopt-a-Park program, the community tree planting that happened at Stowe House, and really a lot of other initiatives in the city parks and open spaces. And I know many city council members have participated in those activities. Um, staff has as well. And they're really terrific. They make a difference and are really valuable ways to engage with the community. I also want to commend someone uh, who is not a Goleta City employee, and that is uh, Brian Troutwine with the Environmental Defense Center. Brian has for years organized volunteers at various times throughout the year and during Creek Week to go down into the many creeks in Goleta to remove trash and waste. And um, I think he was recently 
designated a local hero by the Santa Barbara Independent, uh, something that's long overdue. Um, I know that the city has done a terrific job with plans for, I'm sorry, this is gonna be a little tangential to your later discussion, um, but uh, with plans for managing the watershed. But I have to say that the most tangible and visible improvements that I see in the creeks are very often from the EDC cleanup program. I'd really like to see the city initiate a similar initiative with maybe quarterly efforts by appropriate city crews maintaining the creeks so it's not left to volunteers to do the dirty hard work of creek maintenance. And it's also very important that the city discourage people from living in the creeks. This habitation leads to much of the trash that it has collected, not to mention the waste that pollutes the creeks and subsequently our oceans. I also want to attest to the hard work that uh, Brian put in. Uh, I did a recent cleanup with him at the Mario Ignacio Creek, and it was one of those really, really hot days that we had just prior to the last big storm that we had. And literally, Brian and some of the other volunteers were trying to lift out super heavy wooden pallets out of the creek. And he had a scar on the side of his face, probably from some of the uh, shrubs or bushes that were there, the branches. Uh, he was basically almost on the verge of passing out from dehydration. That's the amount of hard work involved. So the volunteers put in a lot of effort. It would be great um, to see, you know, uh, some of the staff actually working on some of those projects. So uh, and by that I mean, you know, people can, who can handle the work. I don't mean people uh, like Melissa, who has also helped out on some of the work as well. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we have no additional public speakers. Thank you. That takes us to amendments or adjustments to our agenda. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor, uh, Madam Pro Tem. Um, we do have an, an addition we'd like to add tonight, and it relates to a couple comments we've already heard uh, related to the recent storms. Uh, so we would like to add an item to the agenda. It'll be item A5 on your consent calendar. And this is an item, a resolution of the City Council of the City of Goleta that would ratify and extend uh, a proclamation of the existence of a local emergency. So uh, during the height of the storms, um, probably on Sunday uh, when it was at its peak, um, around one or two o'clock, uh, we did make the decision internally that it was time to recommend uh, uh, declaring a, a local emergency. We had been in meetings with the county. The city of Santa Barbara had already declared. The county had declared. I think by that time, uh, the governor had already announced the, the eight counties in the state. And we had some, some local things going on, local flooding and some concerns and lots of trees down um, that indicated to us it was time. So I made that decision and signed the proclamation. By law, uh, the council must meet within seven days and ratify that proclamation. We did not have time, obviously, to put that on the agenda uh, when the packet went out last Thursday. And so uh, the way the law works, uh, you can add this item to your agenda, and the council must uh, vote to add this to the agenda, and then when it's on your consent calendar, you can approve it as part of your consent. To put it on the agenda, you do need a two-thirds vote of the council to add that to the agenda. And again, that would uh, ratify the proclamation that was made on Sunday and would extend it until terminated. 
Thank you. So and I would recommend that you, the council do that now. So the first step would be to, to have a motion to add it to the agenda? I'll move to add it to the agenda. Is there a second? I'll second. Um, so will we do a roll call vote? Councilmember Richards? Yes. Councilmember Kiriako? Yes. Councilmember Kasdan? Aye. Mayor Pro Tempore Reyes Martin? Aye. And Mayor Perotti? Aye. Thank you. That's unanimous. So that now becomes item A5. And when we get to our consent calendar, if there are questions, we can pull it uh, for discussion. Great. And since you're just hearing and seeing it for the first time, a paper copy has been placed on each of your spaces. And we also made paper copies available for the public uh, in front. Thank you. Um, so then we can go to the city manager's report. Thank you. I do have two announcements. Uh, well, one announcement, and we uh, do plan to give an update on the storm events. So we didn't want to gloss over that. We've already heard some comments. Maybe some of the general comments that we make uh, may address that a little bit. But as you pointed out, we'll, we'll get with the one individual uh, and see if we can be of assistance. Uh, but the, before I get to the storm update, I do have an announcement to make. And I, I can't believe I'm the one who gets to do this, but uh, I guess I do. Uh, so as of yesterday, we the city of Goleta received a letter from state HCD uh, that our housing element has been certified. Yay. So they actually don't, don't use the word certified in the letter. I don't know how that works exactly. I'll just read one sentence. HCD is pleased to find the adopted housing element in substantial compliance with state housing law, government code 65580, as of the date of this letter, and that date is yesterday, February 5th. So we received that yesterday afternoon. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it because I'm, all, I'm acknowledging right now that uh, three people of our staff are not here. I think they're getting a well-deserved rest. They may be watching on Zoom. I hope they are. Uh, that's Peter, Ann, and Andy, uh, who lion's share of the work from staff's perspective on this, but really want to acknowledge the community hard process, acknowledge your council, acknowledge staff, big lift. Uh, this puts us in a place to have a certified housing element for the next eight years. So we'd like to turn it back to you, uh, uh, Mayor uh, Pro Tem, in case you or your colleagues have any comments about this, uh, this occasion. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy to I'll open it up for any comments. I'll just you know echo the huge appreciation to the staff who I know have worked countless, countless hours um, over a long period of time to get us here and rightfully acknowledge, you know, the participation of our community um, in this process. You know, this is a planning document um, and we really, really needed to get that certification from the state. So definitely something to, to, to celebrate, um, but it's, it's in many ways only the beginning of a process, uh, but very, very important to celebrate this milestone. Any other comments? Uh, thank you, Madam uh, Mayor Pro Tem. Um, yeah, well, I, I want to echo those comments and the comments of our, our city manager. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's less cause in terms of the result for the community for celebration, but I think it's I think it's certainly cause for the community to breathe a sigh of relief. I think that our staff did an incredible job of uh, at the end of the day, finding the right balance for our community so that we're um, facilitating the process necessary so that as developers and, and community members begin to propose projects that we don't inadvertently build too much of the wrong kind of housing 
and make sure that we end up with the right kind of housing that our community needs, uh, housing for our critical workforce, affordable housing, um, and that kind of housing, um, without getting uh, too much of the kind of housing that our community perhaps doesn't need in terms of like luxury, luxury housing and, and the like. So I appreciate the work of our staff. I think our staff should be celebrated. I think our community uh, should feel a sense of appreciation, uh, perhaps a bit of a sense of relief. Um, I'm, I'm personally very grateful to everyone, not just our planning staff, but everyone in our, um, on our team, our, our legal team, our city manager's office. A lot of, a lot of people uh, worked on this, and I want to thank my, my fellow council members as well for making what were some really difficult uh, decisions, um, but doing so recognizing that at the end of the day, by making those difficult decisions, it allows us to preserve our local planning process, allows us to use our development standards, allows us to ensure that um, the things that make Galita Galita still get to weigh in on how future growth is managed. So thank you, everyone. Yeah, just uh, I would third, and two second, third, the um, hard work, appreciation for the hard work and effort that staff put in for this. Uh, we started the process with um, sort of reading the, um, the plain text, if you will, of what the law was requiring us to do as far as zoning and so forth to support adequate housing and uh, the staff and the state came back to us and said that that was not going to be adequate. So there was a, the end result reflects the state having significant control over what they were willing to approve and what they weren't willing to approve. And staff went along um, and had to keep adjusting to what those demands by the state would be. And uh, you know, finally, we got something approved. But it was um, it was a lot of this was out of our control. The other, just other thing I would mention is how, as as uh, Mayor Pro Tem indicated, this is not the end of the process. All that we have done at this point is change the zoning. That is not the same thing as what the project review will entail when we consider the traffic impacts, when we consider the environmental impacts, when we consider all the things that um, a particular project will, how a particular project will impact a neighborhood. And so, uh, you know, for those people who are concerned about a particular project, this is not the final say. This is just the first, you know, the, the beginning of the, uh, of the process. So, but we made it to at least this far, so thank God. <laughs> um, so anyway, good work uh, for staff and, uh, you know, on we go. Thank, thank you. you. Mayor Purdy or Councilmember Richard? All right, thank you. Our appreciation to staff. And I'm sure thank there's you. a press release going out as we There speak. will be. <laughs> Working on it now.
Uh, yeah, the next item I want to uh, brief on, we've already heard about a little bit, kind of uh, the aftermath of the storm, and we still have more rain coming and, and possibly still effects. So as indicated, once the council takes up the consent calendar, that will extend the state of the emergency until, until we terminate it. But I've asked uh, Mr. Jaime Valdez, our uh, Director of Neighborhood Services, to do a short report uh, just on what's transpired uh, kind of locally and, and our, you know, partnership in the with the, the larger county uh, in the last few days. Jaime? Sure. Uh, good evening, uh, Mayor Pro Tem and Mayor and uh, members of City Council. What I'm going to do first is just start off with a brief overview. I think photos tell a better picture than, than necessarily words. Uh, we're referring to this as the February 4th storm because that's uh, the date of the most impact. So I just want to make it clear. And then obviously today's the 6th. So for people at home wondering. Um, the biggest thing you need to see is big, deep, scary colors, right? And this was the anticipation for the weekend. This was actually the morning of February 4th. Um, the biggest issue for us was not just the water and the rain expected to arrive that was in the area of five to six inches, um, but also the wind and the wind gusts reaching upwards of 50, 60, 70 miles an hour in different parts of the city and in and around the county. So that was kind of the big kind of double whammy. Um, the projections were that, you know, Sunday was going to be the, the worst of it, Sunday night or uh, Saturday night going into Sunday and, and through Sunday and going into Monday. Um, thankfully, 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 uh, the projections of five to six inches really ended up being closer to two and a half to three inches, depending on where you were, which is not a small amount of rain, but just, you know, very much different from what was expected. Um, <clears throat> again, the February 4th date is the, is the main date that we uh, keep tying the dates to. Um, and so this map is something that we have internally to map out uh, incidents throughout the city uh, through our GIS system. Um, just real quickly, at the time, this is still being updated. Uh, 61 unique incidents occurring that Sunday uh, and growing as assessments continue to take place. Uh, the majority of these are related to impacts to city infrastructure were streetscape, sidewalks, so things that you would uh, walk along, um, roads, meaning the actual roads you would drive on, um, creek channels, uh, open spaces and parks, that's the biggest one we're still working on assessments, and nine others. Um, these can include anything from uh, events that occurred on private property that ended up having uh, city uh, assistance go their way. Uh, city staff uh, attended and participated in, I don't know, countless number of calls with the county and the National Weather Service for oper operational area coordination, as well as what they call storm decision meetings. And this is where um, it's, it's changed over time where the county's uh, public safety uh, officials, mainly the sheriff's office and the county fire, really talked to the cities um, and then public works agencies from, from the county as to what is likely to occur and if there's any protective measures that would be asserted, including road closures, um, shutting down of certain facilities. Um, public Works Department opened their uh, department operations center uh, on February 3rd. Uh, the city and staff in total opened up its EOC that Sunday on the 4th. Um, big shout out to Public Works. Two thirds of Public Works staff was active between Saturday and Monday on rotating schedules to make sure that folks were uh, available and that we also had folks available for reserves uh, to, to buttress the, the response. 
Uh, additional support came from everyone. General Services was checking on city facilities like the library, city hall, um, numerous other sites as well. Neighborhood Services um, coordinating with our partners at the county um, and also the library and, and other areas. Uh, finance, uh, incredible job uh, making sure that uh, the departments had what they needed to be able to fulfill uh, assistance requests. Planning was available as well. City manager's office and city attorney's office, obviously with the um, execution of the, the proclamation. So this is uh, just real quick what happened. This is kind of more what tells the story. Uh, we got a first notice that first night, um, Saturday night going to Sunday morning, massive tree falling into a condominium in the Grove condo complex off Hollister. You can see here there's a something that shouldn't be there, which is a tree uh, limb, and then uh, the damage that it did. Uh, it looks like two of the uh, units were red tagged, um, and then there's additional support going to that project. You know, another less severe, but still fairly common occurrence. This is in the North Kellogg area with a fallen tree that, you know, barely missed this vehicle. Um, we even made the New York Times, um, mudslides, rescues, and power outages follow a record rainfall. And this, this is actually a photo um, of Caltrans responding to uh, a fallen tree on Kyrie out uh, adjacent to or across from uh, Maravilla. And the city was there to respond with traffic control and initial assistance. Similarly, you have here at 400 Stork Road near the uh, Postal Service, sizable tree down. Um, this is, you know, a combination obviously of the uh, water and um, saturation levels, but also the, the wind. Um, this is out in the Elwood Mace area, the Santa Barbara Shores Drive culvert. Uh, has effectively been closed. I mean, if you look on the photo on the right, that is not a good sign. Uh, there's barely anything uh, holding this together, and that's why it's been closed for safety assessments. Um, um, public Works staff incredible about getting notices out and postings uh, to try to avert any uh, potential hazards for the public while it's out on the Elwood open space. Uh, we made it an effort to ensure that all postings were in English and Spanish. Um, we just wanted to point that out. Um, we understand that that was an important uh, part of the noticing process. Talked about the proclamation that you'll be discussing later. Uh, mudslide on Cathedral Oaks uh, near Arundel. And that resulted in a one-lane closure. I believe it's still closed as of right now, but uh, th that might be dated. Um, Phelps Road. Uh, you know, suffered a lot of, of a lot of water flooding. Uh, this is after uh, with the cleaning. We can still see the the residual uh, impacts of that area. This is just to say we tried our best to inform residents. Uh, there was over ten press releases um, related to the storm. Uh, you know that occurred before, during, and after, starting on January thirty first. So as we were getting information from the county our incredible public relations team was getting the word out to our community as well as to the council um, with, with you know, timely information and information that was uh, 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 worthwhile to the public. Um, those are just kind of the, the major highlights. Um, I just wanted to just point out now that the city's in the interesting part of uh, transition to a recovery role. Um, and working with its partners uh, to, to finalize and, and still work on the assessments that are, are needed. Um, one thing to keep in mind though, is we do wanna uh, send the message that even though the rain stopped, uh, we're still seeing trees fall. Uh, we still don't want people out in the Elwood Mesa 
Uh, I saw a story earlier today of an evacuation out in Isla Vista due to a cliff erosion that happened after, you know, everyone probably thought everything was clear. So be careful. We, we, uh, it's a good reminder to us to keep uh, continuing to work with preparing ourselves with the storm. Overall, uh, we feel the city's response was handled fairly well. There's always room for improvement. Uh, Public Works did an amazing job organizing itself quickly and efficiently, along with the additional assistance from other uh, departments. Um, we just as a close, we do want folks to report damage to public infrastructure. If you continue to see things on city assist, it's the best way that we have to track uh, requests and then also to fulfill them. And um, if you have damage for private property, so for your own private property, uh, we're directing people to the readysbc.org site where they have what's called a smart sheet where you can go through the process of, of imp uh, inputting your information. Uh, again, reminder, stay away from Elwood Mesa for the coming days. Uh, we don't know how long that will be, but there's just a lot of, a lot of uh, moisture still there and, and the trees uh, have been falling uh, with little to no warning. Um, I think that's it for now, and I'm happy to try to address any questions you may have. Thank you. Any questions? I had one quick question. Um, is there a timeline on the closure of Elwood Mesa? <clears throat> uh, the public works director here, I had, I do not know at this time. Um, we're, we're taking a fair amount of precaution with that, so we don't really want to get ahead of ourselves. Mr. Ebling, respond. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Valdez, uh, Mayor Potem. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a timeline. I, I'm running up here to just say I don't know, but what we really want to do is take a little time to assess a few things, and that's one of them. So uh, that's probably going to be our answer for a few things we're looking at. Yeah, I think that one in particular might be good to just keep informing the public of, of the why so we don't have people you know, going out there. Absolutely. Um, if, if it's truly... Yeah. Right. and safe for them to do so. Absolutely. Thank you. Any other questions? Not seeing any other questions. That concludes my report. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that takes us to our consent calendar. Thank you, Mr. Valdez. Item A1, acceptance of the December 2023 check register. Item A2, amendment number one to professional services agreement number 2023-059 with Government Technology Group for Information Technology Consulting Services. Item A3, Amendment Number 1 to the Professional Services Agreement 2023-041 with Unico Engineering Incorporated. Item A4, Amendment Number 2 to Agreement 2023-033 with Unico Engineering Incorporated for Professional Construction Management Services for Project <coughs> Connect. And Item A5, which was added uh, by a two-thirds vote of the City Council, Resolution ratifying and extending proclamation of local emergency due to February 2024 storm event. Thank you. Are there any items council would like to pull? Should we take public comment before the vote? Thank you. I do not have any public speaker slips, but if there are any members of the Zoom webinar who wish to speak, please raise your hand and I will call on you. And I don't see any hands raised. Right. Is there a motion to approve yeah. the consent calendar? I'll move approval. Is there a second? A second. Thank you. And we'll do a roll call vote. Councilmember Richards? Aye. Councilmember Kiriako? Aye. Councilmember Kasdan? Aye. Mayor Pro Tempore Reyes Martin? Aye. And Mayor Perotti? Aye. Thank you.
That takes us to our presentation. Um, and I'm really proud that tonight we have a proclamation uh, for Black History Month. Um, and it will be accepted by uh, Ms. Diane Travis Teague, Pacifica Graduate Institute Director of Alumni Relations. So I will come up and read that. All right, so I will read this for the record. Um, a proclamation of the City Council of the City of Goleta, California, proclaiming February 2024 as Black History Month in the City of Goleta. Whereas the 2024 Santa Barbara County theme is Black History More Than a Month, and whereas we honor Carter G. Woodson, who established Negro History Week in 1926, his intention was to bring to the public's attention two often overlooked important developments by African-Americans that merit emphasis, education, and understanding. And whereas the 2024 theme reflects still the need to call attention to these merits, but extend beyond just 29 days this year and how peoples that identify in the African diaspora in the United States and in Santa Barbara County celebrate their history and culture year round. And whereas black history is a thread that connects us all, and locally we are grateful to key figures who helped make our region stronger. Individuals like Horace McMillan, Anita Mackey, Valencia Nelson, Babatunde Folayemi, William Downey, Grover C. Barnes, and the late Sojourner Kincaid Roll, contributions help to shape and make communities healthier. And whereas black history continues in the present as multi-generational efforts have been nurtured from Martin Luther King Jr. Santa Barbara Committee, Endowment for Youth Community, the NAACP, Gateway Education Services, Santa Barbara Young Black Professionals, Healing Justice Santa Barbara, Juneteenth Santa Barbara, and other amazing organizations taking up the mantle to continue the love and support for community year round. And whereas the national theme is African-Americans and the arts. African-American artists have used art to preserve history and community memory as well as for empowerment. Artistic and cultural movements such as the New Negro, Black Arts, Black Renaissance, Hip Hop, and Afrofuturism have been led by people of African descent and set the standard for popular trends around the world. And whereas black history is not just about the struggles black families have been through, but rather it is a time of rejoicing, celebrating the accomplishments, integrity, leadership and determination and showing true character. We honor history and celebrate the progress that we have made. We are resilient and resolute in creating new opportunities for future generations. Now therefore be it resolved that on this sixth day of February, 2024, the City Council of the City of Goleta does hereby proclaim February 2024 as Black History Month and calls on all residents to acknowledge and celebrate with appropriate ceremonies and activities. Signed by Mayor Perotti. Thank you. I think we'll, we'll take a quick photo.
up front. Mayor Peretti, Mayor Pro Tem, Reyes Martin, and members of the City Council of Goleta, good evening. African Americans have played a significant role in the history of our nation and California's economic, cultural, spiritual, and political development while working tirelessly to promote equality and a greater, more responsible understanding of our shared history. Today is very special as, as we recognize Carter Woodson, who did establish the Negro History Week in 1926 and honor many local Santa Barbara Goleta residents who have been named for their immeasurable contributions to our community. This year's theme is extraordinary. Black history more than a month speaks not just to our families and our struggles, but to the times that we rejoice and celebrate. It is my honor, our honor, to accept this proclamation alongside those in Santa Barbara making history daily. We are resilient, we are resolute, and we will continue working to ensure new opportunities for our families, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and our community. Thank you for this honor. Thank you. All right, that takes us to our discussion action items. Uh, item C1. First is item C1, Goleta Watershed Characterization, Water Quality Program, and Trash Removal Updates.
Good evening, Mayor Prodi and members of the City Council. Um, we are here tonight to present the Goleta Watershed Characterization focusing on water quality and trash pollution reduction measures. Now, this presentation here is um, one work effort associated with the Creek and Watershed Management Program um, for which you'll be hearing another presentation following this. Um, but this is a significant work effort that deserved its own presentation and its own updates. And what this is focusing on is that the city has been conducting creek sampling for a very long time, contracting with Santa Barbara Channel Keepers, who's done a fantastic job in recruiting volunteers to really go above and beyond and monitor the health of our creeks. Now, with the implementation of the Creek and Watershed Management Program, there was a need to really take a close look at this data and figure out what it's telling us about the impacts to our creeks and watersheds and help us guide priorities and decisions as we move forward with the Creek and Watershed Management Program. So with me here, I have Mr. Avery Blackwell of Geosyntec Consultants. He is the Principal Water Resources Engineer at Geosyntec. And he's been providing Goleta, other jurisdictions, the county, and other jurisdictions within the state, um, stormwater support, as well as watershed planning guidance, and has been one of the authors who's contributed to some very important documents, watershed planning documents for the county and for Goleta in the past. So we're very glad to have him as part of this. One of the, he'll be helping the city with um, data assessment and analysis and modeling. And so this is just one thing he'll help with um, that he's been evaluating and um, Later on, during the next presentation, you'll learn about other efforts that Geosyntec and Mr. Blackwell will be involved in. So with that, I will hand it over to Mr. Blackwell. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. <clears throat> Thank you all for the opportunity to present the water quality findings from the creeks across the city of Goleta. Um, I work on water quality monitoring programs across the state, and it, it's a special privilege for me as a local watershed resident for the last 17 years to be able to present on our findings here locally with you today. So I'm really excited about this opportunity. Um, the city, as Melissa indicated, has been conducting an extensive creek monitoring program since 2000. So as highlighted in the creek and watershed management plan in the action sections, this was a great opportunity to analyze all that sampling data and those results. And so we sought to fulfill four key goals, as you can see on the slide here. Um, first, we wanted to assess the potential pollutant impact on creek water and how it's changed over time and across the city. The second item we wanted to uh, do, conduct was to identify monitoring enhancements to fill data gaps, streamline sampling efforts, um, and utilize the latest advances in monitoring technology moving forward. Thirdly, we wanted to refine the current efforts, or refine um, from learning from the current efforts what seems to work and what doesn't. And then finally, we wanted to create a prioritized watershed list to guide future management actions related to project implementation and pollutant source investigation. 
And so with these three or four goals in mind, we set off uh, to assess water quality across the creeks. Um, but before we get into discussing that, we wanted to summarize for you all today a brief um, overview of the historical creek monitoring program and get you all up to speed with what's been done over the last 20 years. So in 2002, uh, the Santa Barbara Channel Keepers developed the Goleta Stream Team in coordination with the city to collect these basic water quality samples and take field measurements throughout the city to provide a deeper understanding of the watershed health and locate where potential sources of pollution were coming from. They also trained uh, a team of volunteers to collect this information, and the Goleta Stream Team went on to collect this, these monthly samples across the, all the creeks until 2021. As you can see on this slide here, there is a lot of sampling that has been conducted. Um, this shows all the sampling, the 26 sampling locations um, that the Goleta Stream Team has been conducting over the years. It covers all nine of the city watersheds, and the sample locations were um, prioritized upstream and downstream of the city to be able to understand the impacts of the urban area on water quality. The circles that are shown here are sized to represent the number of sampling events that have occurred at each location. So the bigger ones, more samples were collected. Um, the smaller ones, obviously less samples. The brown portion represents the samples that were collected during dry weather when the creeks were just flowing with the, the standard base flow of water that comes down the creek. Um, the blue uh, slivers represent the number of samples that were conducted during wet weather events. So this is when storm water runoff was coming into the creeks and, and potentially impacting the water quality in a different way than those dry weather events. Um, most of these locations, as you can see, had between 100 and 250 unique monitoring events. It's a lot of times that these volunteers went out there, collected samples, gathered some great information. Um, during those events, they would monitor for um, 11 different parameters. They were looking for bacteria, nutrient, and other um, field measurements that they could collect easily and quickly. So you can see 30,000 monitoring results have been um, compiled as a result of this effort. <clears throat> so the question becomes, what do we do with all this data? How do we compile this? How do we try and break this down into stuff, something that's usable? And so to evaluate what all this data could tell us about the health of the city watersheds, we linked those 11 parameters that were, have been monitored um, to four beneficial uses of the city's water bodies. And so we're gonna talk about these four beneficial uses in just a second. But um, the way we evaluated these was based on the Central Coast Basin Plan, which is a document developed by the Central Coast Regional Water Quality Control Board and provides guidance on, on um, how water bodies are used within the, the region and how they should be protected from different pollutant sources. Um, in that basin plan, it um, talks about the level of concentration that parameters can um, be measured at before they start to degrade the water quality. For example, um, as you can see here, one of the uh, water quality um, uh, concentrations that are concerned would be E. coli. And the way the basin plan has water quality objectives, they're called, and they help us understand when the beneficial use of, of um, recreating in the water, water bodies would be impaired. And so this is the, the first one that we looked at um, in terms of uh, a beneficial use that, that we wanted to link these parameters to. 
Um, we also looked at three others. The next one was aquatic life and habitat. And so we want the creeks to be able to maintain aquatic life and have a healthy ecosystem for habitat. Um, we, the monitoring program had five different parameters that would give us information about the potential risk from biostimulation or eutrophication. This is basically when there's too much um, nutrients in the water and, and microorganisms and algae start to grow and it eats all the good nutrients and oxygen so that other uh, like aquatic life can't survive. Um, the next uh, or beneficial use that we wanted to look at was the use of water for crop production and how that could be potentially impaired by salts. And then finally, we wanted to look at fish habitat and how too much um, turbidity or su suspended su sediment in the water column could potentially impact that beneficial use of the water. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of other parameters out there that could potentially impact these beneficial uses. Um, what were those, those parameters that you know, weren't measured as part of this program? What we're looking at here is just how we can take the monitoring data that was available, link it to input, potentially see if there was impacts um, as a result of those parameters. So for example, the final uh, um, beneficial use that we have on the slide here is fish habitat. Now, we all know, um, and the Creek and Watershed Management Plan did a great job of laying out the fact that there are other um, um, impairments to, to fish habitat within the creeks, for example, low base flows, so there's not enough water in the creeks, or uh, other impediments to fish passage um, and, and allowing the fish to actually access the creeks. So those weren't evaluated as a part of this program. This is merely focused on the sample results that were available from this historical monitoring program. So it's important that we, we note that up front here. So for the rest of the presentation, we'll be looking at these four beneficial uses and how the parameters that have been monitored provide insights onto how, um, how well these beneficial uses are, are being utilized at this point. So now we'll move on to talking quickly about the water quality assessment approach that was conducted. Um, so on the next slide, we quickly walk through this approach. Again, there's kind of three main components of water quality that we looked at to understand and to really inform uh, management actions. First, we looked at the, we created a water quality index score, which is basically a score that provides us an understanding of how how the water quality is, is overall. Oh, how much is it exceeding water quality objectives by? How frequently is it exceeding water quality objectives? And how many of the different parameters in that uh, beneficial use category are exceeding? So we group all those together. That gives us a water quality index score. The next uh, assessment approach was to look uh, at statistical tests to understand over the past 20 years, are concentrations improving or are they getting worse? Are they, are they changing? So we ran tests to, to, to evaluate that. And then finally, we conducted statistical tests to understand if the concentrations from those locations that are upstream of the city are higher or lower than the concentrations downstream of the city. So we ran paired tests on, on sampling results to see how does that change across the, the watershed. When all three of these components are combined together, that's what, how we are able to then prioritize management actions for moving forward. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we're going to just jump right into what we found. Um, and then uh, we'll show you a few examples of some of the visualization results that we created to help understand this data and process it in a quick way. 
Um, so the results um, in general are very typical of urban creeks. Like I said, we do modern programs all over the place. We've seen very similar results in Santa Barbara County creeks, San Luis County creeks, Ventura County creeks. It's, it's, it's a very similar um, of these urban creek settings, uh, especially the channelized ones. A lot of uh, the creeks coming through the city of Goleta are channelized in some portion. And so that, that influences some of these um, beneficial uses in a special way. And so um, very similar to what we saw there. Um, you know, we will on some of these slides see some, some brightly colored red areas. And so that's where I, we want to put this out there right away so you understand, although that means that things aren't necessarily great, it's not something that's surprising or out of the ordinary. It's just a way to help us understand that moving forward. Um, another general finding that we, we saw is that um, the recreational RIC risk was the, had the worst water quality scores. Um, so that's associated with bacteria in the creeks. Um, but again, this is really normal for urban creeks. It's by far the most common um, urban pollutant across the state. Um, most of the different impairments that we see in Southern California are coming from bacteria. Um, now, it shouldn't be interpreted as a big public health risk because the type of bacteria that's being measured in this monitoring program is E. coli, which is not necessarily an indicator of um, human sources of bacteria. It's of all environmental bacteria, and it has a lower illness rate associated with it than if you were to monitor for a human-specific bacteria. So that's, that's an important um, item to, to note. Next, we noted that our temporal statistics found very few parameters at a very few locations that were actually increasing over time. Um, and so we actually went and created time series plots and visually confirmed these findings. So um, say it another way, most of the locations are, are either staying the same or decreasing over time. So, so it's a good finding there. And then only three of the parameters had consistently increasing trends when we looked at it from upstream to the city to downstream. So again, the city's influence or potential influence on the creeks, um, you're not seeing that statistically in most of the sample results. <clears throat> so when we move on and look at it, we break it out by dry weather and wet weather. Um, you know, obviously the type of water in the creek is gonna be very different during these seasons. Um, during dry weather, we saw that the water quality index scores tend to be slightly lower um, than in wet weather. So they're, the water quality is not quite as good during dry weather as it is during wet weather, um, except for bacteria, and you'll see that on the, the future slides. Um, next, we saw that weather conditions did not seem to impact the trends over time. So with, at, like I said, mentioned before, the concentrations at most of the creeks were kind of stable over the period of record. During dry, it didn't matter if it was during wet or dry weather. And finally, during both weather conditions, the creeks have concentrations that are either getting better or staying the same when you look at it from upstream to downstream. So again, you don't see too much of a difference in the, the characteristic during that, those weather conditions. So now we get to move into some of the fun images that were created to help us kind of analyze all this data. Again, we're trying to piece together all of this information to a way that's understandable and digestible. I'm gonna take a moment to explain the slide and the, the visual because we have a few of them. Um, so again, there's 11 different parameters that were measured over time um, in the watershed. This one is, this slide that we're presenting here is for E. coli only, so just, just the E. coli results. We're looking again just at dry weather E. coli results. And this is displaying all three of the assessment analysis in one slide. 
So first we're looking at the exceedance frequency. So the color of the square is the frequency that that, the, um, that monitoring location was exceeding a water quality objective. So if it's a light green or yellow, it wasn't very frequent. Orange or red, that means it was more frequently exceeding water quality objectives. The shape of the um, square is or the monitoring location is indication of whether there was an increasing or decreasing trend at that location. So if it's a square, it means there was no change in, in concentration over time. If it's an uh, arrow pointing up, that means that over the last 20 years, we've actually seen, seen a statistically significant increase in concentration over time. If it's an arrow pointing down, we've seen a statistically significant decrease in concentration over time. And then finally, we have the colors um, between the two locations of the creek. And those, again, light green means that the concentration from that upstream to downstream location for events taken on the exact same day are actually decreasing. If it's yellow or red, that means they've been increasing. And so um, this is how, you know, again, there's, we have plots for all the different combinations of, dry we of weather condition and parameter. Um, but we're just going to show you a couple here. I'm going to highlight just a few things that we thought were of a special significance. So, for example, we're going to look here at San Jose Creek. Uh, maybe you can show them, show them where, where that's at. So San Jose Creek is a great example of a, of a location that, for E. coli, had a higher concentration upstream, downstream. You know, it's not exceeding uh, the water quality objectives very frequently. And you can see it's green, so that means the, the concentration from that upstream to downstream location is improving. So the water quality is actually getting better as it comes from, from the upstream to downstream location. Um, in contrast to that, we have El Encanto Creek, where we have um, concentrations of E. coli actually increasing at the upstream location. And then um, as we go across down the, the ch creek channel, we're, we're seeing an increase in E. coli concentrations and, uh, and uh, a significant uh, water quality exceedances at that downstream location. A question regarding what are the absolute numbers in the boxes? Oh, yeah, thank you. That are there. The, you the numbers inside the boxes are the median concentration of all the sample results collected at that location. So, for example, we've collected, you know, 50, you know, for E. coli, 250 sample results at these locations. And so we take the median number, 50% uh, of the results are above, 50% of the results are below, and that's, that's the, um, the concentration of bacteria. So, um, so, so the higher the number is doesn't mean it's better or worse, it just means that there were more samples. No, right? no, it's the actual concentration. So the higher the number, the worse the water quality is. Okay, so the higher the number, the worse. Okay. Yeah, okay, so um, we don't have it on this slide, but we, on our full slides, or full figures, we actually include what the water quality objective is, so you can see how it compares in and, terms of And what is the actual measurement? It's a, like... So for E. coli, it's um, 100 um, parts per, let's see, how do we say it? Um, MPN, or it's like a measurement of bacteria per 100 milliliters. So this would be, you know, for um, Devro, it'd be 496 NPN per 100 milliliters, and that's compared to the water quality objective for E. coli is 104. So, 
Um, so it's significantly above. Okay, thank I, you. I had a clarifying question also, if I might. The, on an El Encanto, mm -hmm. right sort of at the head there, it has uh, that triangle for 311 and then a square in green for 63. A and then nothing actually at the border where mm -hmm. the, uh, the county is. And so I was just curious as far as what is, what's going on. Yeah, so at that location, the monitoring program is monitoring two separate locations where the creek comes together. And so um, they were trying to capture the influence of the creek upstream from two separate you know, watersheds where they joined together, before they joined together in El Encanto, in the, the lower part of El Encanto Creek. Um, you know, the monitoring locations were selected a, a long time ago, and I think they what they have a lot of limitations on where they could actually collect the samples. They need to be accessible from pu public lands. They need to be accessible in general. They need to be um, places where there's, there's water flowing. There needs to be um, a place that they can, you know, be safe to collect their samples from. So there's a lot of factors that, that probably went into how they selected their locations. And so... so um, is is it likely the 63 is coming from the Evergreen area, or mm -hmm. is the 311 is coming from near the Glen Andy Golf Course area? Yeah, uh, yeah, that would right. be accurate. Councilmember Kiriako. Thank you, Madam Mayor. For um, as long as we're doing this, let me go back to slide nine. It's the one that has the header of monitoring locations and events, and it has the little pie charts with the different numbers. Mm-hmm. You may have answered this at the tail end of the second to last question. Um, some of these results have almost just like a two to one ratio of testing during dry weather to testing during wet weather. Mm -hmm. Others have much wider gaps in testing. I'm just trying to get an understanding <coughs> of is that, are these results? Are the gaps and the frequency of these tests random, or is it based on kind of what you were alluding to earlier in terms of the, avail the accessibility of the land and the conditions and yeah. when people are available to go out and test? Yeah, so there's a, that's a great question. There's a lot of factors that go into that answer as well. well some of the locations have, have not been monitored for the full, full period. They were monitored for 10 years in the middle of the program, and then they discontinued them. Some of the locations were monitored, um, <clears throat> you know, less frequently um, than the other ones um, for, for reasons, you know, I'm not quite aware of at this point. Um, some of the locations are dry a lot of the time. There's just no flow at that location. So, for example, like LC1, that channel location is just almost always dry. So when they go to collect a sample, there's no, no water to pull and collect a sample from. So... Um, so those are a few of, of the different reasons why, you know, some of the, pro the locations were added later in the program. So, you know, they started out in 2002 with a much smaller subset, and then they added locations to try and expand the program as it went on. Okay. And then I think the report alluded to that we had the stream team until 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have we noticed a change in the rate of sampling since then? So I think the program w went on pause at that point, and I can let Melissa talk to that more. I'm trying to get a sense of, is this something that we could cure with staffing, or is this just a different issue? 
um, Councilmember Kiriako, we, um, it was on pause for a little while as we kind of conducted this evaluation to see where we wanted to move forward. And also some, some staffing things with Santa Barbara Channel Keeper, but I'm happy to report that our main person is back in action with a new family member. And um, so we're gonna be starting this up again, hopefully within the next couple of months. And Santa Barbara Channel Keeper and Mr. Blackwell here will be working closely as we kind of go through our recommendations for any additions or modifications to the program. Um, but right now the plan is to continue the program as it is until we agree on a different path forward. Okay, well thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, I think we're on slide. Let's go to the second one. <clears throat> All right, so picking back up uh, on our charts here, we're going to move on to the next um, figure, which is nitrate. Um, there's a few uh, really interesting observations here. Um, if you look all the way at the right hand of the screen, you can see Maria Ignacio uh, Creek. Um, that location has a very significant increase in concentration of nitrate and phosphorus from the upstream to downstream location. So something really important to, to investigate further. Um, the Glen Annie Creek in the middle of the uh, city here, you can see it has two red arrows, one uh, pointing down, one at the top, one at the bottom. So it's exceeding uh, nutrient concentrate or nitrate concentrations uh, most of the time. But over the last 20 years, the concentrations have actually been decreasing. And as you look, has the concentration across the city decreases as well. So although there's high concentrations in terms from the city's perspective, it, it seems to be improving. Um, Next, if we move on to the next slide, we'll look at conductivity. Um, here, just wanted to point out that there's only two locations where conductivity really seems to be an issue, and these are the two locations kind of on the outskirts of the western edge of the city. Oh. Maybe finish your sentence. And oh. then we can at the edge of the city um, where the concentrations seem to be increasing um, from the upstream to downstream location. Sorry, I got too eager. Uh, what is con conductivity? Conductivity is it's a, usually it's how electric the water is, and it's usually a measure of salts. It's, it's, there's higher salt concentrations within the water, the, the conductivity of the water increases. So this is really has a big impact on the beneficial use of using the water for agricultural purposes. If they apply the water to their crops with high salt levels, then it's going to you know have a detriment to those salt or the plant production. Okay, and again, uh, what are the numbers that we're looking at there? Same. These are just the levels of conductivity. So it's measured. It's in microsiemens per centimeter. Um, so it's just a, a unit of measure for, you know, the higher the con conductivity, the more salts that are in the water. Thank you. So, you know, this would be a good moment to point out, um, you know, the monitoring program that was developed was, was meant to be a quick and uh, easy and efficient program to implement. To do that, they have to use um, indicators that are kind of several levels away from what's actually trying to be measured. So like I mentioned, you know, conductivity is measuring the salts in the, the water, which then is you know, impacting the beneficial use. It's conductivity in itself isn't a bad thing, but it's a quick and easy measurement to take. And so 
Um, we'll be discussing kind of the, that'll come up later in the recommendations. Um, and our last slide that we wanted to highlight here was the wet weather E. coli concentrations. Again, this is where, you know, I tried to prime us all with the idea that we're not supposed to freak out. Um, this is very common and typical of urban um, water quality within Southern California. Um, again, E. coli is, again, one of those indicators that's a few steps removed from the beneficial use, as I mentioned before. It comes from environmental sources um, that are low, have low illness risk, um, but it's the best surrogate that the regional board had when they developed um, this, the, the basin plan to be able to, to monitor for any kind of bacteria influence. And so that's why these um, concentrations, although they are high, um, don't lead to, shouldn't lead us to huge alarm. <clears throat> All right, so now the question is, we have these great figures, what, what do we do with this information, right? We're not just analyzing this data to, to have the, the, an understanding of the watershed. We want it to lead to something. And so um, what we've done is we've created an approach to prioritize management actions based on these findings moving forward. And we created three bins here, the first one being high priority areas. These are areas where you need to go do something, something needs to be done to understand what's going on, where you have that bad water quality and it's not, doesn't seem to be getting better. And so what, what are you gonna, what's, what's gonna be done? And so um, that was the first bin we wanted to group things into. The second bin was the areas where water quality seems to be really good and it's not getting worse. It's just stable at that good condition. So we'll group those into a different category. There we're gonna be recommending you just, you don't need to even monitor as much as you are right now because things have been the same for the last 20 years and, and they're good. Um, and then the final category is that medium priority. Um, this is kind of everything in between. This is where we need to make, we need to do a little bit more monitoring, maybe enhance the monitoring program to really understand how potentially beneficial uses could be impaired you know, with some, some more advanced um, analysis approaches. So we took the, the results that we had, we took the binning methodology I just described, and we used those to create these um, uh, water quality or watershed management priorities as shown here. This is the dry weather figure. So again, if you go back to that, the early slide that we discussed where we mentioned the four different beneficial uses that we felt we could evaluate with the water quality results available, here we're showing those four um, beneficial uses. The green um, shading means that those beneficial uses are in a good state of being based on the water quality data that we have available, the types of um, parameters that were measured. The orange means there needs to be some more, there should be some more monitoring done in an enhanced way. And then the red means let's go out and, and understand, you know, what's potentially causing these, this poor water quality that's not, doesn't seem to be getting better. Um, so the top um, squares are for the recreational um, use, beneficial use. Um, the second square in, in each of these little rectangles is for the, um, the biostimulation eutrophication, the third is for the crop production, and the fourth is for fish habitat. So you can see in general, there's, you know, you have a few creeks that are doing really well. Um, you have a few creeks that have a few different sources that need to be really investigated, and then you have some that, that have a mix of all three. Um, 
And then if we move on to wet weather, like I mentioned in the general findings, it seems to be even better here. Uh, not as many impairments, just a few. Um, one item to note, uh, you know, we saw the slide where bacteria was really elevated. Um, that links to the recreational use, which is that top square on all these. Um, since uh, wet weather conditions, or you don't have a lot of people out recreating in the, in the creeks, in the cold water, you know, in the high flows, we have decided to make that management action just a, a, a medium priority instead of a high priority because um, it's just not, it's not being um, utilized as much as, as could be. So, so, <clears throat> so using these um, priority management actions, we've now been able to characterize all the watersheds and, and inform um, what type of movement and management actions we should take moving forward. So based on this uh, information um, and the findings of the water quality assessment and, and some initial discussions with the Creek and Watershed Management TAC um, Technical Advisory Committee, um, we've developed some recommendations to enhance the monitoring program and we've grouped those into five different categories. <clears throat> so the first category um, is to to monitor more direct indicators of beneficial use. So as I mentioned, we're looking at four different beneficial uses, but we're only looking at a few different indicators that can help us understand if those are impaired. For example, there's other um, indicators that we weren't able to evaluate, whether ecological toxicity, that's when you have high metal concentrations. We, we don't have any data on that. We're looking at, we didn't, like I mentioned before, we don't have information about the flows in the creek. And, and how that could be potentially impairing fish habitat. So we need to do more analysis of that. Benthic macroinvertebrates, fish health. There's a, a handful of categories that we identified and have developed some initial recommendations for um, using more accurate indicators of the, the health than, than the current program includes. Um, the next enhancement um, that we're recommending is at all those high priority management of locations, we recommend developing a hypothesis-driven tiered investigation approach to identify those sources. So that means doing a desktop analysis to look at, you know, what types of land uses are in each of these watersheds, what types of potential sources could be nearby. Um, then we then we recommend going out, walking the creeks, and identify where potential sources of flow are coming into the creek during dry weather when there shouldn't be any flow coming into the creek. At those locations. Sampling could be conducted to help us understand what the quality of that water is. And then storm drain network investigations, where you actually walk up those following those flows to find out where they're actually coming from. Are they coming from, you know, uh, somebody accidentally connected their sewer system to the storm drain, you know, um, things like that. So that would be how we'd identify those sources. Um, the third objective is to continue to track the water quality, um, spatial, and temporal trends over time as the monitoring program enhances, is enhanced and new um, parameters are included. You need to make sure that you include those in those trends to be able to make that, those evaluations. It will take a little while to have enough data to actually make those analyses, but it's important to start that right away. Um, thirdly, or fourthly, um, the Creek and Watershed Management Plan, TAC, um, has been an excellent place for feedback um, from many of the different interrelated agencies within these watersheds. Um, 
so additional um, communication with them and other agencies within the watershed should occur so that collaboration uh, can enhance these monitoring programs. And so we're working together with our partners in the, the watershed as opposed to trying to do it um, individually or separately. And then finally, um, <clears throat> this assessment um, of the creek water quality has been a substantial step in the development of visualization techniques for communicating watershed health to the public. Um, these findings and others should be developed to enhance uh, monitoring moving forward. It should be incorporated to the city's online dashboard and at, there should be an annual meeting or some other place for um, the discussion of these results with the public. We would envision something like at Creek Week or something where the public come together to understand the health of the watersheds. <clears throat> um, all right, so the next steps, based on all this information, uh, there's a clear path forward to act upon with these assessments. Um, first, the high priority management locations get started right away with source investigations to understand more deeply what's going on. Um, second, in addition to the water quality monitoring recommendations, um, the Creek and Watershed Management Plan has recommended a comprehensive monitoring program, so an incorporation of of the monitoring enhancements that we've identified here, plus all those other ones to develop a comprehensive overarching monitoring program. Um, third, the city should look for funding opportunities for the monitoring program. And then this could come through partnerships with the other agencies within the watershed or through grant funding opportunities. And fourth, um, starting with the analysis and visualization techniques that are included in this presentation, um, stakeholder communication tools should be built alongside the, monitoring, the new monitoring program, the enhanced monitoring program going forward, so that it's easier to manage the program as the program is being developed. Should I move straight into this one, or should we have some questions now? Okay, great. We're gonna move right into, I'm gonna take one quick breath, and we're gonna move, <laughs> we're gonna move into the trash removal assessment. Um, we will we will get to public comment as soon as we're done with the presentation and council questions. No, it's not the next item, just a different piece of this. So we've been talking about water quality within the creeks. Now we're in the and how that influences the watersheds. Now we're going to be looking at trash in the creeks and in the the watersheds as a whole. Um, so surveys done during the development of the creek and watershed management plan identified cleaning up trash in our waterways as the highest concern. So as a result, the Environmental Services Department made it its top priority. Tonight, I'd like to summarize three of the programs that have been implemented or enhanced to address trash in the city's waterways. So you can see the three here on the screen. Uh, I'm just gonna move right into discussing them for time's sake. Um, so the first one was to enhance the street sweeping program. So street sweeping in the eastern Goleta area has been ongoing since July 2003. However, in October 2022, um, the Environmental Services Department switched to an updated routes and schedule and added some additional cleanings. What, ha what they've done is they've now switched to sweep sweeping both sides of the street on different days as opposed to on the same day. Um, in, in the or red boxes here, you can see they've actually added some additional routes um, to, to sweep more of the area. And then finally, on the next screen, you can, or the next um, 
next red box there, you can see um, that Old Town Goleta was identified um, during the, the trash assessments that as an area where extra cleaning needed to occur. Um, there was, that was their, a hot spot for trash. And so they've conducted um, additional cleaning with two employees who manually pick up litter. And they use a leaf blower and leaf vacuum to clean curb lines. Um, and the city staff have been reviewing feedback from the community for this approach and getting really positive results for the, the amount of trash that's been reduced in this area. Here we're showing uh, the dashboard for the Beautify Goleta um, volunteer program. Um, so Beautify Goleta was a bulky drop-off item event that was occurring twice a year from 2016. In 2022, they added to this um, the Neighborhood Volunteer Cleanup Program, and it was, it's been really successful at reducing trash in neighborhoods um, by hosting Saturday morning cleanup events with volunteers, um, and then still providing more of these bulky drop-off locations um, for Goleta residents to, to bring their trash and freely deposit it um, when they have too much trash at their house that they, they can't get rid of in their regular bins. Um, and uh, <clears throat> you can see the, the, this dashboard is, is live and gets updated in real time as, as new events occur and the city, uh, the residents can quickly see and understand the benefit that they're making in their community. <clears throat> so the third um, program that I'd like to summarize here regarding trash uh, removal is the city has been going above and beyond the California trash amendment requirements in terms of the frequency for assessing trash in commercial, industrial, and high-density residential areas. So there, there is a requirement out there for all cities to be doing this, but, but you all are going above and beyond that. In fact, the street sweepers uh, across the city have been trained um, in the assessment approach. So now not only are you, you going out and doing uh, the, the assessments on a regular basis with your field staff, but the street sweepers that, that operate, the operators of those are actually doing those during their um, street sweeping routes. Um, and so... This is already, this information has already been put into action, all, all the data that's been collected here and utilized to help inform the hotspot cleaning that I mentioned in the previous slide. And so now we just have a couple slides of results here and to show the improvements within the city that have come about as a result of these enhancements. First one here is just the amount of trash that's been re removed over time. So starting back in 2019, you can see just a, an increasing trend in the amount of trash that the um, program has been removing, mostly through street sweeping. You also have some volunteer cleanup, you know, starting to add on to that as well, um, and, uh, and really showing some good improvements in the area. The next slide shows how this translates into those trash assessments that we were discussing earlier. Um, so the dark blue boxes represent a grade, an A grade, which basically means during the assessment there was no, little to no trash on the street in the sidewalk. A B grade means there's some trash, but it's still not that much. So in general, you didn't have that much to start with, but now as a result of these programs, you've continued to see an increase um, of 120% as you've started to implement more and more of these programs. 
And so now um, in 2023, you can see m almost all A grades on, on all of your surveys uh, of trash assessment. Oh. I'm a, can I just finish the last slide here? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so just a couple considerations um, that we found uh, uh, as putting together this information. Um, the, the volunteer cleanup events are a great hit. We need to keep doing those um, and look for more opportunity to see if there's areas where those can be expanded. Um, again, the hot, targeted hotspots also have been really effective, and so um, <coughs> some more work can be done looking at the, the grades that have been received to see if there's additional locations where that should be conducted. Um, also looking at the assessment results to see where we should be targeting full trash capture projects. And then trash is still observed in the creeks, so we need to continue to increase stakeholder outreach and, um, and incorporate that into our, our um, management actions. Thank you for that excellent presentation. So we will take uh, council questions and then public comment. Um, I saw Councilmember Kiriako. Thank you. Can you go back a slide or two um, where you were talking about the street sweeping in terms of results of the grades? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that'll work too. Um, given that we haven't yet fully um, or even partially uh, implemented our, a lot of our timed parking plans, how do you mm -hmm. think that's going to impact the monitoring results? Because as I understand it, what we're basically talking about when we're capturing trash is the stuff that the sweepers can get to, and with both sides of the street blocked, particularly I'd say in Old Town by by cars, um, you're not able to get to all the trash. So, what do you think the prospects? I mean, I'm asking to put you on your prognostication <laughs> hat. What do you think we should have to look forward to as we start to implement timed parking in the next year or two? Um, how do you think that's going to play out in the results? Mayor Prodi, Councilmember Kiriako, I, I can take this one. Um, so to mitigate the fact that we didn't have um, timed parking, we increased the street sweeping program to include manual litter removal. Um, so that's what we're currently doing. So I think the benefit would be a cost reduction <laughs> would be the main. Um, our streets are looking good, um, but of course, if if the street sweeper is able to get right up into the curb, um, you know that that will re result in even more improvement because even if you're going around the cars, they're still there, so there's still an obstruction that you really can't get around. Thank you. That's a great answer. Councilmember Richards. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for the report. I, I appreciate all this information. Um, I, I want to say also, you know, in particular, I, I want to acknowledge and appreciate the, the, what did you call them, the Glita stream team that, that were out there for over 20 years collecting 30,000 different samples. Uh, I think that's amazing, and it gives us a, a great starting point to work with, and it sounds like all of what you're reporting to us is based on an analysis of all that information. Um, so uh, I just want to clarify then, you didn't make any new samples uh, in, you know, it, as part of this project. It was simply uh, analyzing the existing data set right from up to 2021. So I, I do have to say I'm, I'm concerned, though, that we haven't been monitoring since 2021. I think 
you know, so it sounds like the most recent data that we have is at least three years old, and some of it, you know, goes back 20-some years. Um, so I, I am eager to get that program restarted, and I'm glad to hear that it will be. Uh, I guess a, a few questions that I have is that, will it be a, mon a, a, a volunteer-driven program again as it was, or is this something that we're taking control of as the city? Um, how will it be different in terms of how how it will operate. Uh, Mayor Prodi, Council Member Richards, it will be the same program as always been, so we're just going to be resuming it. Um, you know, Santa Barbara Channel Keeper is a nonprofit, and um, uh, they're going to run their program the, the way that they intend to, um, and, and that's fine. So, and, and they'll be using volunteers just like they always have been, um, doing monthly monitoring, Mr. Blackwell is, ad, is here to advise them. So they can take his recommendations or they can continue the program, they can expand the program, or we can supplement that work some other way. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, and then is the intent then to monitor over those same 11 parameters at, at the same 26 locations or is that something that they'll have to decide also? For right now, we're gonna continue to do that. Um, and then as Mr. Like I said, as Mr. Blackwell goes through, he will likely be suggesting additional parameters. And at that time, we'll decide if, you know, Channel Keeper wants to do that work or if they don't, if, if somebody else wants to do it. So um, we'll be working closely with them throughout this process. And is that a contract with the city then? Or, or what's that relationship like with, with their monitoring program and, and us? It's a contract with the city. Um, and, and, but they recruit volunteers to help, um, which means that, you know, it's a huge cost savings for the city. So yeah, yeah. I was wondering, you know, if we, if we pay them at all, then is it completely volunteer or do we contribute anything to their overhead for that? We do, we do pay them. Um, but you know, the cost is minimal compared to what it would be to hire full-time samplers to conduct that work. Okay, okay. Um, and then with regard to the recommendations and kind of our next steps, um, are we going to wait for any of that new data? Like, are we assuming that the conditions over the last three years have pretty much stopped and, and we're just kind of basing our recommendations and our plan moving forward on, on that data? Or, or to what extent are we going to look at new information and try to incorporate that into, the, into our plan? Um, Councilmember Richards, I, you know, I think we're going to continue to evaluate the changes over time. And this is something that, you know, Mr. Blackwell and I have discussed is creating streamlined tools that can easily flag things if they change and that we need to pay attention to them. Um, as well as if we do collect additional data, incorporating that into our management decisions. Okay. Um, I... I, meant, I heard that there were some areas proposed for trash capture and water filtration devices. Uh, do we know what those are yet, or are we still evaluating? Uh, we're still evaluating, but we have an idea of where some of them are going to be. So I'll, I'll pull up some um, conceptual things in the works in the next presentation. Okay. And how many are we looking at? Um, conceptual projects? Yeah, the, the trash capture. Uh, the trash capture, I think we have about, hmm, 
you know, I, I don't know offhand the locations. We will pull it on a map. Um, I want to say around 10 to 15 locations um, and potentially more. Right now we're focusing phase one on Old Town where we have the largest impacts. Okay, thank you. Um, I also had had a question about the street sweeping, which was uh, asked, you know, in terms of how effective is it uh, without moving the cars? It sounds like it would be a, a, a definitely uh, improvement in the effectiveness once that happens and, and reduction in price, I heard. Um, what about when there's no curb? Uh, you know, some of our streets don't have curb and, you know, it's just like uh, gravel, you know, and, and the, the, the machine kind of, I, I see them run up and down the gravel. Is that uh, effective or, or what, what's the, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think that's a, a really good question and brings up, you know, issues of sediment and gravel moving around and things like that. Um, you know, we haven't focused on that in terms of the effectiveness of those areas specifically. We haven't specifically collected data on that. Um, but, you know, we do hear from residents if, if there's gravel moving around or if anything isn't getting cleaned up. So we address that issue kind of separate from the overall trash pollution reduction. Do they, does the trash collector, does it pick up the gravel when it spins around there or does it just leave the gravel or move it around? Um, you know, it doesn't really pick up a lot of gravel. Um, that's not really the intent of the machinery and the equipment. So mm -hmm. it, it may pick up smaller pieces, but um, mm -hmm. it mostly, you know, leaves the gravel. So sediment is a different issue. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I'm going to go to Mayor Perotti first. A lot of my questions have been answered. Um, I will say this. I just want to say this is like an excellent, excellent. I learned um, report. I learned so much. Um, I, I did, you know, my question originally was about the street sweeping. And now that we've increased um, uh, our street sweeping in certain areas, are we seeing that people are being compliant and trying to? You're back. I think we, we missed the end of your question. No. Okay. I just plugged my computer back in. It was dying. Um, the end was like, do we see um, an increase in um, uh, vehicle of folks being compliant where they know the street sweepers coming on a particular day? Uh, since we've increased um, the areas of street sweeping, are we seeing people moving their cars or we need to do more work in those areas? And that would be time parking, I guess, or I don't know. Mayor Perotti, we are seeing people move their cars, but we still have a lot of work to do in that area. So, you know, there are, there are residents who are really good about it. And if we change the street, the sweeping schedule, they will let us know that, hey, I moved my car on the wrong day. <laughs> and yeah, you should have told us. So, um, you know, we we definitely have um, a significant number of people who are trying to be good about that, but of course, you know, without actual enforcement, there's still quite a few folks that um, don't bother to repark. Okay, thank you for that. Councilmember Cousin. I guess I'll start with that. The street sweeping right now. Are there signs that say street sweeping coming on Thursday at three o'clock? Uh, please move your car. And, it, and it's just left voluntary? Or how do they know that street sweepers are coming particular 
times. Councilmember Kazdan, you bring up a really good point. Um, we did think about issuing signage, but we kind of knew that this might be an interim measure and that we might be doing something more with timed parking. So the way we have it now is we've put out a few press releases um, and then we do social media like on a, on a regular basis. I think we're doing it quarterly um, to, 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 to remind people um, of the voluntary parking. Okay, I mean, because even timed parking will only go so far because people will be, you know, leaving it there. It'll just be a checkerboard kind of thing where cars come and go. And so we might, if we might have to consider, well, actually, I should ask you because because the grades are so good right now, it's uh, how necessary is that? Councilmember Kasdan, I think that really comes down to cost um, the cost issue, and okay. you know if we if we want to see that benefit in cost reduction. All right. Well, at some point we can you can tell us how much that is those costs, and then we can discuss and have a public process whether it makes sense or not to go further in terms of specific days for street cleaners, street sweepers coming in. Yeah, the public loves it. <laughs> um, I was curious, the, the data that we collect on the streams, all right, how much does that correlate or is consistent with what state law is requiring and how much of that is what we've determined is appropriate or unnecessary for us? Councilmember Kasdan, the stream data we've been collecting is not required by regulations. This is completely voluntary by the city of Goleta to go above and beyond regulations. Mm -hmm. We have separate programs, separate sampling programs that are required by regulations, and those have to do with dry weather sampling um, to identify illicit discharges. So if there's flow during the dry weather to investigate it, um, wet weather sampling in different parts of the city in different watershed locations to see what happens when it when it rains. So we're usually out there during storm events sampling, um, and and then our regional sampling with the county. So that's really our requirements. But the stream data is really above and beyond and not required by regulations. Okay. So there's no state federal. Etc. mandates or requirements for us to maintain water quality at some standard? There are basin plan objectives um, that basically apply to everyone in the basin that we should maintain it at this standard. Um, but the way that we do that is through the required sampling programs. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know, Mr. Blackwell, if you have anything to add, but, um, in general, there's a difference between saying these are the basin objectives and you have to achieve that as a basin, then you must sample here. And at every instance, right. you must be below the water quality objective because it's a little complicated, but it's risk-based. Yeah. Well, the, okay. But the, let's say for the basin, is there then the any any accountability is not 
attached to a political jurisdiction. It's just sort of that the the basin should have good standards, but it's not a requirement for Goleta versus IV versus the county along the river or the watershed. So, and and Councilmember Kasdan, I hope I'm understanding your question correctly. Um, I don't think there are necessarily political issues, but... I didn't mean it politically. I just meant jurisdictionally. So in other yeah. words, if, the, if above us we know, for example, that the, if there were tons of agricultural runoff coming from the foothills, it becomes a problem, in essence, for us to compensate for the counties. And I'm not saying this is necessarily the case, it could be that we're just doing nothing and leaving it to Isla Vista to have to clean up. So is the a sense of accountability imposed just that the watershed itself needs to, or the basin, as you said, needs to achieve a certain standard, or within that basin, based on political jurisdiction, we each have some sort of requirement to achieve? Okay, that's a very good question. I think I understand it better. Um, so. So right now, there's for our creeks, there's no real standard just yet. However, that could change. Um, some of our creeks are on the have been submitted as impaired creeks and are listed as impaired. Um, and right now, that hasn't translated into any specific action, but it could potentially in the future. And when you talk about who's responsible. Um, you know, that's where it's important to do these kinds of evaluations and to collaborate with your partners because the water board will look for feedback. So if it gets to that point where, you know, um, the water board requires specific actions, um, we would want to inform those decisions with the type of data analysis that Mr. Blackwell has been conducting. Okay, so if I understand that right, so in other words, with each of these basins, it's the... There's no, there's no requirements or, or regulatory hammer, let's say, that comes down until we hit a certain level of impairment. And then once we get to that point, the water board, I believe you called it, then can take a, like an ownership position and start mandating regulatory responses for up and down the, the watershed? That's correct. And which of, you said we're close on a couple of them, El Encanto, is that one? We're, co we're close, I don't know which things they're measuring as opposed to the four uh, elements that you guys were, were evaluating. What, what, are they similar, what they measure? Those things where we have this overriding interest as does the county uh, in maintaining water quality along those, or quantity, whatever it might be, habitat. I'm sorry, Councilmember Kasdan, can you clarify are what similar? I, I missed which, that. Which watershed? I guess there was two things. One is that um, is that is what the water board is using to evaluate water quality where they might potentially impose regulatory responses. Are those the same standards that they're looking at that we're measuring are four things or are they looking at something else? Okay, I believe I understand your question. And so for our regional sampling, we look at additional parameters as well. 
Um, so there are additional requirements for what we sample, wet weather, dry weather, et cetera, as well as these monitoring parameters that we're sampling for in our creeks. So if, if the water board you know, decided that um, these, our creeks had gotten to a level where additional action is required, they'd likely recommend additionally sampling um, of more parameters. Okay. And Mr. B I do want to let Mr. Blackwell, the expert here, um, chime in on this. Yeah, I, maybe it'd be helpful to provide a brief summary of how the process works. So there's no required monitoring um, within the basin plan itself, which is the governing document here. The Regional Water Quality Control Board created the basin plan. The basin plan identifies the beneficial uses, like I talked about, and it identifies uh, the water quality objectives that are the concentrations that if you exceed those, then your beneficial uses are going to be impaired. And so those are standards that they look at and they say if these concentrations are exceeded, then something wrong, is going wrong here. So they develop this document and then what happens is that people collect monitoring data. It's not dictated. There's one, one monitoring program that the, the city is conducting that is dictated by the board. Um, but, but this program that we're looking at is not dictated. And so there's, there's other people that go out and collect data. And as they collect data, the data gets submitted to the regional board. They start to compile all this data. They just look for it wherever they can find it. And as they get it, then they start to compare it to those water quality objectives, which are the same ones that we compared our parameters against. And after a while, um, they build up enough evidence to see whether or not the concentrations are above those objectives or not, and if they are, then they place them on a list. It's called the 303B impairment list. That's the Clean Water Act. Yes, right? Clean Water Act 303 impairment list. Once they get placed on those, which the city, which within the creeks, within the Goleta, there's a lot of pollutants that are on these 303B lists. Um, and many of the ones that we've talked about here are on them for different watersheds. Um, once they get on the list, they um, are there until they either get delisted because the water quality is better or they get moved into what's called a TMDL. And so the Regional Water Quality Control Board, when they identify a pollutant and it's elevated, its concern has been elevated enough, then the, the Regional Water Quality Control Board will write a TMDL for that. So actually within the Goleta watersheds, there is already a TMDL for nutrients, but it only identifies agricultural uses so right now in Bell Creek and Pecolote Creek, there's a nutrient TMDL, and it's assigned its responsibility just to the agricultural users. And so the city is not a responsible party within that TMDL, so there's no monitoring requirements, there's no implementation requirements. Well, particularly for those two creeks and agricultural uses, yeah. it seems like it's the source of those affluences is exactly. the county, the foothills above us, the agricultural operations there. Mm -hmm. there's, there's not a bunch of agriculture going on there and in the city. Yeah, exactly. So they're actually subject to the regulatory oversight. Yes. Huh. And so if a, a, a pollutant of concern was elevated enough within the city that the, the Regional Water Quality Control Board decided to write a team deal, then they would allocate responsibility 
to all the different people within that watershed. So it'd probably be ag, it'd probably be the city, it'd probably be the county. A lot of these go by the airport, so they might um, identify the city of Santa Barbara as well as the responsible party. Um, so that's how they would then do it. And in that Tyndale, they would say what type of monitoring you have to do, what type of implementation is very prescriptive. And they've written them, you know, there's some in Santa Barbara, there's some in um, Carpinteria has one, there's Sandy and Ez River has one. So there are, they are occurring in different parts of the region. So as Melissa indicated, this is kind of a get out in front of all that. Yeah. You know. One last question. Um, one of the recommendations that you had in the report was that we work and coordinate more with other jurisdictions, political jurisdictions, like namely the county upstream and so forth. Where does that stand? What are they collecting now? Is there some interest? Have we reached out? What's the status? Councilmember Kasdan, we are in collaboration with the county. We've presented this presentation to them. Oh. Um, so they're aware and they're interested. Um, I don't know if they're yet gonna reach the point of sampling, but um, definitely they're also interested in supporting kind of some of the other aspects that we're recommending to address these as part of the Creek and Watershed Management Program. So um, the county has been involved um, and as we move forward, they will continue to be involved. And um, when we make recommendations, we will likely make them for the city, but also have some recommendations um, for the county to consider as well. As well as we're getting their feedback um, in that process. Okay. Well, I hope they do initiate some monitoring too. Thank you. Thank you. I don't have any additional questions, but I do want to compliment Ms. Nelson and Mr. Blackwell for an excellent report and presentation and for addressing so many questions that we had. Um, let's go to public comment. I do have three speaker slips, and if any members of the Zoom webinar wish to speak, please raise your hand and I'll call on you. Our first speaker in person is Mark Preston, followed by Ethan Woodhill. Um, this is perfect because I've been working on something for over a year now and I came to the right meeting to deal with it. <laughs> I'm talking about a site that is north of the Hideaway Bridge out on uh, western Glita. In 1995, a storm clogged a drain, that a concrete conduit that flows under the tracks. Everybody scrambled to solve their problems, but UPR did knowingly, willfully, and permanently divert the flow to east, east towards Bell Creek, permanently, okay? And uh, that is in the coastal zone. It is in the coastal zone. It's right on that, uh, right below the dotted line there. And I'll show you the location right here. Um, so the one I'm talking about is right here, this last little thing right to the right of the BL1. That is a tributary of the Devereux Creek. It's not been tested. The reason it's not been tested is it's dry. The reason it's dry is because UPR took the water and diverted it right along the, uh, the railroad tracks and dumps it into Bell Creek. It's been that way for 
way over 20 years, but it was before the city, but it was after there was a Coastal Commission. Uh, it's a gross violation of Coastal Commission policy and statutes. UPR has alleged to everybody here that, well, if you guys go out and pay for a, a study, we'll think about it, okay? I contend, and we'll contend, that this is UPR's problem. They did it. They did it in the coastal zone. It was against the law, and it's been shined on. Additionally, the de development uh, hideaway in their development agreement had absolute airtight uh, commitment to solve that problem. Okay, so it's dry. The Sandpiper Golf Course will not be affected because it's specifically designed to handle that water. Uh, and I, I'm running short on time, so I went out to that location during a major rainstorm, knowing that the water was going to go take a hard right turn and go to Bell Creek. I was amazed because there is another outflow at Los Armas, that dumps into the same location. And then there is an outflow from God knows where running on the south side of the track that flows mm -hmm. down towards that bridge. You know what it does? It's been designed to turn right going through the conduit in the opposite direction it was designed for and heading out to Bell Creek. So if you've got red lines in Bell Creek, I'm telling you, it's because you've got a mile or so of water flowing that should be going to Devereaux Creek. I left you color pictures. I left you this bullet point. I didn't get through all of them. And that is the thing right there. It's a blue line that has no water. Thank you. Thank you. Our next public speaker is Ethan Woodhill. Um, I as well came to speak on the water and was very timely. Um, one of the things we're speaking about is the way that the water flows through the third district and especially into Evergreen Park, which if you go to the bottom of Hillview Drive at the base of Evergreen Park, you will point out, which I will send pictures to anyone who would like, the drainage culvert is completely filled with mud so that the storm drains that service those roads and that park cannot operate properly. We've also as well, by admittedly not all fault of the city, had as well the drainage culverts fail on the road of San Marsano and Padova above. So that is creating a multitude of problems in this area. I can see a drainage culvert with my eyes that is literally this far filled up with about that much space available, which is all sediment. Um, we talk about, you know, when we do these things, we also talk about parking. I've spoke to Mr. Nesbitt many times and to multiple people about people who park and keep derelict vehicles on Cathedral Oaks Road, who do not move them to the point that they have weeds growing up and play a game with our city of pushing and pulling their cars around to not remove them. To no avail have I gotten anyone from code enforcement, parking enforcement, to the city manager to do anything to help. And if we walk farther up that road, which you should make yourself availed to, sir, across from Northgate Drive in the entire, the entire complex, there is a dirt road which people continue to park their cars on, which drops right into El Encanto Creek. So where do you think all that oil, all that car, and all that stuff is going? 
It's not legal parking. If we actually got rid of the people who are not using legal parking properly, then we could do something about that. Uh, in addition, we're discussing issues here of timed parking. Um, timed parking, to me, look, I love to discuss this. I love trash removal. I love our city being better. I love being in our water. But time removal is not applicable to District 3 and District 4. And we have sat with no representation. And we should be talking about the cars parked there. We had to talk about those earlier with a homeless issue just recently on Phelps, which I support those people. And I do not wish them to see them get pushed around, but they could be pushed to my district and my area next. It's not acceptable. You guys need to come together with a good, solid, cohesive parking plan to not allow people to take advantage of these things. You need to as well address these things so that we do not have trash and we have our sweet streets sweeped properly. Also so that they don't end up being pitted horrible messes, which the voters as well are upset at you for. Thank you very much. Our next in-person speaker is Brian Troutwine, followed by two speakers on Zoom. Thank you and good evening, Mayor Perotti, uh, Mayor Pro Tem, Reyes Martin, and council members. I'm Brian Troutwine, a senior analyst and watershed program director for the EDC. Uh, EDC commends the city for its water quality monitoring program, uh, street sweeping program, and Beautify Goleta. These have been very successful. And we also want to thank Santa Barbara Channel Keeper for collecting the water quality data on which the city relies. The 20 years worth of data they've collected at Channel Keeper is very valuable, as, as we've seen here. The city's making great use of it, and the city should continue partnering, partnering with Channel Keeper and funding their water quality monitoring program so we have that data going forward. EDC's creeks, uh, creek cleanups were also very successful this year. We had um, six cleanups, 156 volunteers, uh, including some of you, um, thank you, for coming out. Um, and we removed this year 13,394 pounds of trash, recyclables, e-waste, and some household hazardous um, items like paint directly from our creek beds, um, which is obviously where it would get washed out to the ocean. So that 13,394 pounds, that's a 25% increase over our total last year. We actually thought it was going to start going down this year, but each year we're seeing more and more trash in our creeks. We're getting the volunteers, we're going out there, we're working hard, but we just can't get it all. So we're unfortunately leaving trash in the creeks because there's just not enough time to get it all. Um, EDC supports the city's water quality monitoring program that Mr. Blackwell and Ms. Nelson um, so eloquently described. And we, in fact, recently provided comments to your staff and to uh, Mr. Blackwell regarding the scope of the water quality monitoring. One thing that we wanted to point out, um, the slideshow indicated that many of our creeks are a low management priority for fish. You recall seeing the green fish up there. Well, that's, um, you know, that's based on only two parameters, as Mr. Blackwell said, dissolved oxygen and turbidity. Um, and we understand that comes from the Regional Water Quality Control Board's basin plan. Um, but our creeks, if you look to the other agencies that manage our creeks for fish, Cal Fish and Wildlife and National Marine Fisheries, they're saying our creeks are in very poor shape for fish because of other problems, um, including the fact that most of our creeks are now pumped dry by water wells and, and siphoned dry by creek diversions. 
Um, and, and also because of migratory barriers that block the movement of fish. They can't get from one place to another in the creek anymore. Our creeks did used to generally flow year-round, most years. Um, they have been siphoned dry by creeks, uh, by water wells and creek diversions. And as our creeks become more stagnant as a result of diversions and wells, the pollution concentrations increase. There's nothing better for clean water than creeks that flow unimpaired. And there's nothing worse for our creeks or more devastating for our fish and wildlife than creeks that are siphoned dry. And concrete channels are another real serious problem. And they affect water quality. The increased sunlight that hits the water heats it up. It's called thermal pollution. And that's really bad for fish and frogs. Um, it also creates algae blooms, which are very harmful for our creeks. And concrete channels, you know, natural creeks filter pollutants as it, the water flows through the stream bed, the gravels, the plants, the roots, the microorganisms. But concrete channels don't have any of that, so we lose our natural filtering capability when we have concrete channels. So I'll close the two most important things we can do to enhance our creeks and our clean water is to one, protect flows from excessive pumping and diversions, and two, replace the concrete channels, which are in most of our creeks, with natural streams. That's the community's vision, and we appreciate your help getting to that vision. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker on Zoom is Molly Troop. If you can please accept the prompts that are gonna be on your screen. Hi, good evening, Mayor Brody and council members. My name is Molly Troop, and I'm the Science and Program Manager at Santa Barbara Channel Keeper, local environmental nonprofit organization, um, and our mission is to protect, restore, and restore the Santa Barbara Channel and its watersheds, which we do through science-based advocacy, education, fieldwork, and enforcement. And um, I'm here tonight. I, I um, I'm very impressed with the presentation um, that we just saw, and so I'd like to thank, thank the city and its consultants for the for the great work um, that they've done on the Goleta watershed characterization and water quality analysis. As mentioned in the presentation, this analysis, which includes over 30,000 data points, was collected by community members of our stream team program, which we ran in the Goleta Valley watershed for over 20 years. And just to a uh, few more details on the program, we engaged and trained um, volunteers to conduct monthly water quality monitoring of, um, as you heard, 20 diff 26 different sites um, at different times. And um, this result, this is a result of over 630 volunteers who have contributed more than 2,000 hours over these years of monitoring. So we're pleased to see the city um, conducting robust analysis of this data set, as well as taking the data further and um, looking at ways to inform creek improvement projects. And we look forward to continuing to be a partner um, and contributing to this, the improvement of our creeks and watershed health. Um, I do wanna uh, highlight, as um, Brian Troutwine just said, and, and you heard in the presentation, um, many of these sites do go dry many times of the year. So. When the creeks are dry, um, we are unable to measure parameters. So I think um, it is important to, to note that and really focus on, um, on um, the, uh, the water available in the creeks. Um, and 
Additionally, to water quality monitoring, we also have a, a robust community trash cleanup program, which is our watershed brigade. Um, we support individuals and also organize group cleanups and have been um, contributing to trash removal throughout Goleta, um, which has removed hundreds of pounds of trash over the years. Um, and so we also um, commend the city and their efforts and appreciate being a partner in these um, important efforts of trash removal. Thank you. Our final public speaker on Zoom is Jeff Kubran. If you could please accept the prompts that are going to be on your screen. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, thank you for uh, allowing me to speak tonight. Um, thank you for the great presentation. And uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, I know Mr. Blackwell had stated about the um, beneficial uses um, as far as um, recreational use in the creeks. And well, obviously, most folks are not going out in the winter time um, and playing in the creeks. Um, playing in the creek, only kids play in the creek. <laughs> as my son stated, we play in the creek sometimes. Um, but uh, I just wanted to mention that, you know, during the winter time, there is some really good uh, waves uh, for recreational use in the ocean. And uh, wow, I'd love to participate. Um, you know, it's a uh, concern with the water quality, uh, especially the bacteria. Uh, I have seen a lot of intrepid surfers out recently uh, with some of the big swells. Um, here in Santa Barbara, um, coming in with the waves. So I'd say that the, uh, the weather, um, you know, it would be great to have uh, good water quality during the wet weather as well. And that's all, thank you so much. And there are no other hands raised at this time. Thank you. This is a presentation item, so there's no action. Do you have any other comments? Yeah, I did have a question with respect to uh, when, when Laura had commented. Is your mic on? No. Oh, thank you. Uh, I was just curious. I've seen in the newspapers uh, talking about the Klamath Valley and how they've uh, taken action up there to increase the water flow in the streams there in order to benefit, in their case, it was salmon habitat. Uh, and there was, so I was just curious what our opportunities are, what the two, if we were looking or hoping for an increase in water quantity in our streams, is there a way? And how would that work? Or it's just, we'll see. <laughs> Council Member Kasdan, um, you know, this, this presentation here is focusing just on the water quality aspect, not the quantity. We will touch a little bit on that in the creek and watershed presentation. There are ways, there are things we can pursue and evaluate, um, and that, that is very much in discussion phase with internal staff and with the technical advisory committee. Um, water quantity is a challenging issue. Um, but it's absolutely something that we are incorporating into the Creek and Watershed Management Program as a priority. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And I really enjoyed the presentation. 
Thank you. Before we shift to the next item, I think we should take a five-minute break. Oh, do you have anything else? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I had a few more uh, comments. I, I just want to say, you know, I know that we're, uh, we're just hearing a presentation here today. So, but I, I did want to mention that, you know, that we had received a few uh, comment letters, uh, com you know, mentioning that, you know, we should be prioritizing that this is a important priority for the city, and that, you know, we've gone to, gone to a lot of work to develop this program and we should make sure that it gets the funding that it needs and I know that we're not making funding decisions tonight but I did want to just go on record that I, I feel like that this is an important um, program of the city and that it does deserve to get um, the, the priority it needs uh, when it comes to our budget uh, decision process so I just want to mention that um, in particular um, you know I, I was uh, I, I also agree with uh, the speaker uh, mr. Troutwine that was mentioning that we, I was surprised at how many of the, uh, um, on the map, um, it looked like how, how low a priority many of the, um, it has a fish designation, I guess that's aquatic uh, of, uh, wildlife um, as a priority. And I wanna make sure that that, that that is a high priority for us, that we are looking at the health of the, of the bio, biosphere, of the, of the uh, ecology of the creeks, and that we're making sure that that has, you know, the, what it needs to to maintain healthy and uh, creek and habitat for them. Um, also, I, I I wanted to comment regarding to, uh, the speaker who was talking about the uh, the railroad and the diversion of that creek. And uh, I'd like to learn more about that. And I'd like just to ask our staff to look into that. And I, in in what was described, I'm also wondering if that's diverting a water that would be flowing through Devereux Creek uh, into our a butterfly uh, area and and if it would help if it would uh, if, if that water would be flowing where it should be so I'd like again I'd like to have our staff look at that so, great thank you I would second wanting more information on that any other comments from anyone all right we'll take a five-minute break thank you All right, we'll reconvene and we're on item C2. That is item C2, Creek and Watershed Management Program Update, Dissolution of Solid Waste Standing Committee and Establishment of and Appointments to Watersheds and Waste Reduction Standing Committee. Hello again, Mayor Prodi and members of the City Council. So you just saw um, a presentation on one aspect, one work effort that we're doing, and now we're going to present our annual comprehensive update for our Creek and Watershed Management Program. And so we'll go over a brief overview of the Creek and Watershed Management Plan and Program the priorities that we've set in 2023 um, and the work that we've done for the last year, as well as the current and upcoming projects and work efforts. And then finally, some considerations and recommendations. 
So just briefly, um, the Creek and Watershed Management Plan was really a community-driven effort um, based on the strong desire within our community to protect our 12 creeks. We have an astounding 12 creeks going through our city, our coastline, our open spaces, our native habitats and protected species, and really everything within the watershed. And so the community brought this forward. City Council recognized and shared that desire and adopted the Creek and Watershed Management Plan in late 2019. And so now it's formally a program. And when I say we have the desire to protect and preserve, primarily that's referring to protect and preserve from the effects of human activity. But, you know, one thing we also really have to start looking at is also climate change. So just a brief introduction to the project team. I'm Melissa Nelson, the Environmental Services Division Manager within Public Works, managing the Creek and Watershed Management Program. But I'm not doing it alone. There's a lot of other team members. George Thompson, the Parks and Open Space Division Manager. Autumn Glaser, the Capital Improvement Program Manager. And you see both of them seated here. Um, and then virtually every other department in the city as well. Um, so the Public Works Director, of course, Mr. Ebling, is um, a key team member and collaborator, as well as the Parks Division within Neighborhood Services, multiple divisions within the Planning Department, and the Finance Team. We also have, as we've mentioned, the Technical Advisory Committee, and this consists of technical experts within our community, as well as other jurisdictions and local nonprofits. Um, you heard from one of our members today, Mr. Brian Troutwine of Environmental Defense Center, and there's roughly 19 members on this advisory committee right now. And I also want to highlight the Goleta Slough Management Committee that we've been participating in. Um, but now that we're on the implementation of the program, of the Creek and Watershed Management Program, there's going to be more and more um, collaboration as we share many of the same goals. Um, but this is really the core team. I do want to point out that we're getting feedback from everybody. You know, really the whole city of Goleta and all of our residents, our business owners, they are all potential contributors and um, stakeholders as we implement this program. So this program is incredibly comprehensive and um, the goals are visionary and aspirational and um, really just, you know, strong desire to go above and beyond and, and protect our natural resources here. So the plan itself has over 160 projects and action items therein, um, ranging from general direction as in you shall protect creeks and watersheds to concrete projects and specific action items. So, um, our, our staff team kind of evaluated all of these action items and narrowed it down to 40 key projects and action items that were concrete enough to evaluate and prioritize. Um, so then we started going through the process of prioritization. And we are prioritizing initially based on benefit, opportunity, and now watershed by watershed. So when I talk about benefit, really we're looking at all the benefits that 
our creeks and watersheds offer our habitat, wildlife, safe, clean drinking water, or just safe, clean water, recreation, um, very importantly, flood control and safety, and related to that, climate resiliency, education opportunities, natural, natural beauty of the environment. And another thing to focus on is environmental equity, making sure that our creeks and watersheds and the environmental benefits that they offer, um, you know, that that all communities can enjoy them. Um, so, so we're looking at um, the benefit, priority based on benefit, just which projects and action items have the most benefit, but also we have to look at opportunity. So, and there's a few ways that we talk about opportunity. One of them, you know, is kind of existing um, projects potential multi-benefit projects or existing CIPs that could potentially be evaluated to add more of a benefit. And, you know, we kind of call these low-hanging fruit, but I do want to say just because an opportunity exists doesn't mean it's easy necessarily. So, but we are looking at ways to be efficient and effective. Um, one of the main things that we also look at is funding availability. So if there is funding available, we do want to seize on that opportunity, and that may make a a project or action higher on the list. Um, so we're kind of looking at these, um, you know, citywide, but now we're in the phase of really watershed by watershed prioritization because each creek is different. Each watershed has its own um, benefits and impairments, and so the priorities on each watershed are going to be different as well. So how, do, how did we kind of do this? How did we get all this feedback? Um, well, I mentioned we, we got input from the community as well as, you know, collaborated with each other. Um, so one of the ways we got input from the community is with that technical advisory committee. Um, we met five times with them, and we also gave them a couple of surveys um, to, to see what they, they valued in the creeks. Um, and then we also did broader outreach to the public, again, using surveys, but also via events and um, and social media and and more. Um, so here you see just two examples of the creeks of the surveys that we submitted to the public in the TAC. Um, and, but there was much more discussion that went on than this. So just to summarize the results of all that effort, um, we came up with some key priorities based on benefit. Okay, so we're not talking opportunity; we're just looking at benefit. And we realized that we really need monitoring surveys and data collection. So you know that we have an existing sampling program, but we need to do a lot more. Um, there was discussion at Mr. Blackwell's previous presentation about how, hey, water quality is not telling the full picture of you know, fish passage and, and benefits to fish. Well, we need other data to know um, to really get the full picture. So, so we, need it, we need more data to inform our initial prioritization, but we also need to gauge our progress over time. Um, also, as was previously mentioned, looking at creek modifications, such as concrete channels, and evaluating whether you know, we can um, mitigate those effects through either full restoration or um, mitigation measures and evaluate the feasibility of each. So really a feasibility analysis. 
and then water capture multi-benefit projects. I'll talk about this more later on in the presentation, but um, what this is really looking at is um, capturing water, capturing rain, um, and storing it and allowing it to infiltrate will provide many benefits to our creeks and watersheds. And then again, just mentioning a priority is to look at each watershed individually and um, figure out what action items and projects are of priority in each creek. Okay, so now we can talk a little bit about our ongoing and upcoming projects and efforts. Mentioned data collection. Well, data collection is only part of it, right? We have to be able to analyze the data, visualize the data, understand what it means. So we're developing tools um, to help us do that. And one of the key things that we've done is we've developed a creek and watershed interactive map where we've put basic creek information and features, as well as the data that we're collecting. Um, and, and you can kind of see that here on the map on the right. Um, it may be a little small, but we have information about vegetation and land cover. We also have information about invasive vegetation, um, our creeks, and, and numerous other um, data and just information. What we also want to do is some of the evaluations that Mr. Blackwell talked about and upcoming evaluations, we want to connect that data and those statistical tools to this map. And then we also want to be able to distill it down into something like a creek and watershed report card. So we saw kind of an example just for water quality, but what we really want to do is look at all the aspects and have a, a comprehensive report card. And this is for us to evaluate data, but also communicate it to stakeholders. All right, so I mentioned that the surveys and monitoring plan, so this is a priority for 2024, is to develop creek survey, a comprehensive creek surveys and monitoring program. As you know, we already have some monitoring in place for trash and water quality. But um, as Mr. Troutwine mentioned earlier, uh, base flow and flow is really important to evaluate, um, as well as invasive species and native vegetation health, wildlife habitat and passage, the creek structures, the morphologies and the natural microhabitats that they offer and you know how they might be changing or affected. Um, and then modifications, impairments, things like erosion, also land use, both legal and as well as illegal and looking at other illegal activity as well. Okay, so before, you know, before I get into the map on this slide, um, I think it's important to understand a recent concept of one water. So in general, I, I think it's fair to say that water is important to creeks and watersheds. Um, I think that statement in general is easily understood, but I think we have to think about all the ways in which water is important to creeks and watersheds. You know, water quality is important, water flow, um, water quantity, um, but also there can be harmful effects um, if the water velocity is too high and it can create, you know, erosion or flooding. Um, 
or other negative effects. And also water supply. So, you know, the creeks actually, in some areas of the city, feed groundwater, which we use for drinking water and other purposes. And in some parts of the city, groundwater feeds the creeks. So it's all interconnected. Um, and then a, a, another one is climate change. You know, we already experience in California um, extreme periods of drought, followed by like something we just saw, which is record rains. And the trends recently suggest that this is getting more and more extreme with time. So this is another aspect of water that we need to think about. Um, so you have multiple aspects of water and why they're important. And traditionally, all of these have been kind of siphoned into different disciplines. Um, and they haven't been really considered comprehensively. And I think those of us in the water world have always been bothered by that. Um, you know, the siphoning is good in a way, um, but at the same time, there's barriers as well. So, um, so we've really been starting to think of the concept of one water, um, really looking at this comprehensively. And the good news is that the regulators, the EPA, the Cal EPA in particular, and the State Water Resources Control Board has also been thinking along the same lines and using this concept of one water. Um, so, so we have all these issues. Um, how, how can we tackle them? Um, and I think a, a good way to do that is to look to stormwater and what stormwater has been doing. Um, because on the micro level, um, stormwater really requires rain capture, greening of areas, and infiltration to provide multiple benefits um, to you know the the vegetation and the soils below are one of the best filters you can have for most of the pollutants in urban creeks. Um, also, it slows and retains and prevents erosion. It also serves as flood control. Um, so this is the way that in the stormwater division, which or the stormwater program, which this division also manages, this is how we do it for individual developments. But what if we take that concept and expand it, and expand it citywide, and, and take on more aspects of this water importance? You know, flood control is going to be more important, but can we rethink it? Can we rethink it into an example here on the lower right slide, right side of this slide, is the living levee? You know, where we're looking at habitat restoration, we're looking at habitat enhancement, and as well as infiltration and water capture. And then thinking even further into the future, can we evaluate these types of structures to consider climate change in these, these um, where we have periods where we have more water than we know what to do with, and then we have periods where we don't have enough? And can we use this for reuse either on-site or off-site? So, so just in general, you know, the concept of one water is connected to um, you know, rain capture, and greening of spaces. So you might hear the term clean creeks, green spaces, and we're really talking about these features when we refer to that. All right, so I, I mentioned looking to stormwater, and um, you know, one thing I want to make clear is that 
the stormwater program and the creek and watershed program are separate programs. But there's a significant nexus that I think is important to understand. Um, so the stormwater program is regulatory driven by the Clean Water Act and the state and local requirements incorporated therein. Um, and we have, we have some big kind of goals and overarching initiatives that are represented by these blue lines. And I know everybody can't see all the text, that's okay. I'll walk you through some of the key components and what this diagram is displaying. Um, and I won't go over all of these um, major areas of focus and programs, but I do want to point out, you know, education, outreach, and public participation is one of them, where we have things like K through six education conducted by Ex Explore Ecology in public schools, um, as well as really targeted outreach and education to different industries, such as construction and restaurants and local businesses. Another one I want to point out is illicit discharge, detection, and elimination, where we investigate, educate, and enforce upon any discharge of pollution or non-stormwater. Um, and then I do want to highlight post-construction. Um, this is really what I referred to before in terms of looking at development and um, making sure that these um, rain capture and greening of spaces are included in all the development that occurs within the city. And then the full trash capture program, um, which is essentially a mandate to do full trash capture. Okay, but on the creek and watershed side, that is not a regulatory driven item. This is a community grassroots program that we've developed. And it's more comprehensive than just water, right? It includes biological and wildlife um, monitoring and really focusing on habitat enhancement and restoration, as well as looking at base flow and, and other items not covered by the Clean Water Act. So what I wanna go over now is this nexus. Where are these overlaps and why are they important? So on the stormwater side, these programs represent an opportunity. So that opportunity that I was talking about um, prioritized based on opportunity. So what I have here in this nexus is our programs that have been modified or expanded recently to achieve creek and watershed management goals. So I mentioned K through six education. We'll be working with Explore Ecology to make sure that they're also being educated about our program. Um, and you know the sampling and um, storm drain mapping and more. Well, you just you just heard a presentation from Geosyntec regarding how we've gone above and beyond what our sampling requirements are to fulfill the goals of the creek and watershed management program. Um, also, I want to point out the full trash capture program, um, initially focused on just capturing trash, but we're looking at that project and trying to evaluate um, and really trying to incorporate kind of multi-benefit um, aspects to it and components. Um, on the creek and watershed management side, we have a bunch of items that aren't required by regulations, but that are helping us achieve our goals um, for the Clean Water Act. Um, so again, um, the water quality forensics and evaluation, watershed characterization, um, things like beautify Galita that we're not required to do, but we want to do for creek 
health, well, that, that also helps um, achieve our regulatory goals. Okay, so more on opportunities. I really want to highlight the opportunities presented by our parks and open spaces. Um, so what you see on the map here are actually projects that were identified in the 2019 Countywide Stormwater Resources Management Plan, something that Geosyntec helped develop. Um, and what these are are potential projects for um, rain capture and greening and infiltration. Um, and you'll see a lot of them are overlaying on parks um, or nearby parks or open spaces. And so the reason our parks and open spaces, they're already providing a benefit by just being a green area that allows for infiltration. But we have to also be in communication with the projects that the parks division is recommending or moving forward with and that they've done a great job collaborating with us because those present opportunities to make these even better features um, within our city to really capture and improve and you know look to the future of watershed sustainability. Um, additionally, you know, the maintenance of our parks and open spaces is really important, the ongoing stewardship of whatever it is we're doing with this program to make sure that um, you know that continues and it's maintained. Okay, so now I want to talk on priorities based on opportunity. So we've talked a little bit about um, you know priorities based on benefit, but the CIPs uh, listed in the Creek and Watershed Management Program or elsewhere are fantastic opportunities for us to look at. So they're projects that we're already planning. We wouldn't have to start from scratch. Can we incorporate multi-benefit components, rain capture, um, reuse components into those projects? Um, so I have Ms. Glaser and Mr. Thompson here to talk about a couple of these. Um, these projects include the San Jose Creek Fish Fish Passage Project, which is um, which is required by regulations as a mitigation measure, but is also an, a key project in achieving our creek and watershed management goals. Also, the Full Trash Capture Project, again, um, talking about how we're going to modify that. Um, Storm Drain Master Plan, uh, Elwood Monarch Butterfly Habitat, and other CIPs related to creek and watershed that are still un unfunded but in the process of evaluation. And these include other actual specific infiltration projects as well as the Phelps Ditch Trash Control Structure and other programs. And I just want to point out that, you know, these are action items within the creek and watershed management program. So those action items are provided for reference. So since I'm up here, I'll, I'll go ahead and give a little more detail about the full trash capture project. Um, so this is a requirement um, associated with the Clean Water Act and our state requirements incorporated therein. And it essentially requires full trash capture, just like the name says. And you can do it by um, installing approved devices that have been approved by the State Water Resources Control Board or you can do an alternative measure. So what we show here is um, some of these blue dots in, indicate kind of what's, what's just been approved by the water board. 
Um, but these green squares and triangles represent things that are multi-benefit that we're recommending incorporating into this plan to provide more benefits to creek and watersheds. And one of the one such feature is a filtera box that looks just like a tree, but it's actually engineered um, subgrade to filter out pollutants, retain and slow the flow of um, stormwater and water runoff, as well as um, serve as full trash capture. And another, and another one of these features also includes a modular wetland. So these can also be a place where we can, you know, enhance um, habitat and um, also have a greening of the space, which is also important, especially in um, Old Town, the area that we're going to be focusing on. All right, and with that, I will hand it over to Ms. Glaser, um, the CIP manager, to discuss fish passage. Thanks, Ms. Nelson. So the city owns and maintains a fish passage facility in our San Jose Creek channel. Uh, improving fish, fish passage is one of the most effective ways to help conserve vulnerable species while building a safer infrastructure for our community and improving climate resilience. Current challenges with the existing fish passage include debris buildup um, and damaged or missing fish weirs. There's a lot of um, maintenance that's required, so uh, it's costly to, to maintain at this point. Um, as part of Project Connect, and specifically uh, the Hollister Avenue bridge replacement, the modifications um, were required as part of the permit process and mitigation measures. So we're making modifications to replace the damaged weirs and implement updates to the configuration of the fish weirs to reduce annual maintenance costs. Um, this new design implements fish weirs that promote self-cleaning during storm periods and meet fish passage criteria while allowing for flood control during the peak flows of the storm event. Our public works team has worked closely with the County of Santa Barbara, um, NIMS and CDFW to take part in multiple witness testings of a physical scaled model to review these design and make uh, modifications to capture these um, you know, such changes as um, Ms. Nelson has pointed out and how we can um, meet our own criteria and also limit intervention from maintenance, um, ultimately allowing fish passage throughout the wet season. Um, so this project also addresses many um, priorities, as Ms. Nelson has uh, pointed out. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Glazer. And um, we also have an Elwood habitat restoration component. Um, and I don't know if Ms. Glazer or Mr. Thompson um, were prepared to say any words about that. Um, I'll hand it back over to Ms. Glazer. Sorry about that. Uh, yes, so as part of some of our CAP projects, we do have um, habitat restoration and mitigation measures. And these include um, areas uh, off-site, so not just in the Project Connect um, footprint or the San Jose Creek bypath footprint. While there is mitigation measures that take place there, we're also doing um, habitat restoration at Lake Los Caneros and also Elwood. And some of these objectives include um, 
removing um, non-native plants, uh, opportunities for roosting habitat for monarch butterflies, riparian esha will be enhanced, um, and also just an increase in native plant diversity and abundance resulting in the expansion of riparian corridors. And so both of these projects have um, multiple acres of mitigation um, combined between the project site and then also at the two sites of our open space. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Glazer. And I'll now hand it off to Mr. George Thompson of the Parks and Open Space Division. Great. Thank you very much. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Um, we have significant components of the phase one implementation plan that City Council approved uh, back in October um, that focus really on Devereux Creek habitat. And uh, happy to report that we've submitted our coastal development application to the Coastal Commission staff. They're reviewing it and we're scheduled to go to construction uh, this summer after we go to the Coastal Commission for that final CDP. When we look at um, project elements that are really focused on Devereux Creek, they come down to two general components. One is the physical ecosystem, what we're doing to improve the creek habitat. And then the second component is what we're doing to improve our community's relationship and understanding of Devereux Creek and the butterfly grove. So for the first part, we're proposing to plant hundreds of native trees. These include oak trees, sycamores, box elders, willows, as well as a variety of native shrubs that uh, would have been found along Devereux Creek before its development. And by development, I mean uh, planting and agricultural history and, and so forth of eucalyptus. When you go out to Devereux Creek the next time you're out there, um, one of the interesting things to note is that most of the eucalyptus that we've lost uh, within the grove have been primarily centered around the riparian corridor. And I think that's mostly explained by the high presence of, of water and unstable eucalyptus trees uh, and saturated soils often don't mix. We saw that in the most recent uh, storm event. And so what we're proposing to do is in those areas where we have lost a lot of the eucalyptus canopy, come back in and plant native trees. Um, and then, of course, we do have a significant component of eucalyptus plantings in and around the, the upland areas where we historically have had um, butterflies aggregate. Um, if you look at the ground level, we also have a wide diversity of plants, native plants, sedges, rushes, um, other wetland species that we're proposing to plant uh, along the lower banks. And then lastly, we are proposing to actually create some new wetlands. So. If you envision yourself at the butterfly viewing area and you're looking down in the gully right below where uh, most people view the butterflies, there's a, a gully there that we're proposing to enhance. So create a series of weirs, natural weirs, um, built of native materials, sandstone, soil, uh, and then plant those with native plants. And that's going to do several things. It's going to create some new wetlands, increase the humidity, which is good for butterflies, and then also the plants that we're putting in there are great food resources for butterflies, birds, and other wildlife. Going to the community component, we have uh, planned out through this year and continuing into the future, more regular guided tours, better educational signage. Um, we've already updated our website to reflect uh, the project components and um, advertise upcoming opportunities. 
we've hosted a Monarch Butterfly Forum, and that had a specific focus uh, during that forum on Deborah Creek. And then we are going to be hosting uh, quite a few volunteer events for people to come out and get their hands dirty, uh, do things like pool invasive plants, help us plant the hundreds of thousands of plants that will be going in over the next several years. And um, I know the Mesa currently is closed for public safety concerns as we're doing safety assessments in the wake of uh, our most recent storm events. But we are scheduled to have uh, in March, uh, March 9th, uh, from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m., a new event for the city called the BioBlitz. Um, we'll be updating the community as we get closer to that date after the safety evaluations and any um, actions that we need to take uh, at Elwood Mesa. But the BioBlitz is going to be a fun event where you go out to the Mesa, you have your smartphone with an app uh, called iNaturalist, and we'll have a whole um, squad of trained naturalists, professional biologists on hand volunteering their time to help you identify plants, birds, insects, snakes, lizards, amphibians. Um, so it's just one other method that we can get better community engagement to learn about our creeks. Next slide, please. Another project I want to highlight um, is a project where we're actually not in the, in the driver's seat, so to speak, but we're um, serving as advisor as, as part of a wider team. And this effort grew out of um, a countywide effort to basically improve our community's resilience in the face of more frequent and more intense wildfires. And I just want to highlight um, the Santa Barbara County Regional Priority Plan um, is really the one of the, the starting blocks for this um, next suite of projects that I'll be discussing. But I want to highlight um, this countywide collaborative, the Santa Barbara County Regional Priority Plan. I just want to mention the website, sbcwildfireresilience.org. Um, this has been an effort that has been several years in the making. Um, it's a suite of projects and collaborations that really prepares our community for wildfire. And the other component of this um, effort is uh, a report that was completed by Brian Troutwine um, from the Environmental Defense Center and his intern, uh, Max Kalber. Uh, several years ago, they completed this report, several hundred pages that systematically went through each of the Goleta Creeks and identified potential projects that um, would benefit creek health, ecosystem health, as well as reduce wildfire risk. And so out of that effort, um, I think it was about two years ago, uh, we're looking as a group through this collaboration to see how can we get funding, apply for a grant, who will be, who will be the lead. And out of that, uh, the Kachuma Resource Conservation District was identified as one entity that could help write the grant, be the grant recipient, and then through other um, partners, we could move this effort forward. So the effort is to identify 10 to 12 projects in Goleta watersheds, primarily focused along creek corridors, where we could make meaningful, positive changes to the creek ecosystem, and at the same time, increase our community's resilience in the face of wildfire and ecosystem health. And so we're right now um, evaluating those 10 to 12 sites. Um, 
just recently the UC uh, SB UC Santa Barbara Cheadle Center was brought on as a contractor under the Consumer Resource Conservation District, and they're now looking at these t- ten to twelve sites and actually doing designs on what can happen there. So reducing the amount of invasive plants, replacing those with natives, um, some real tangible uh, actions. And so we're looking forward to that, um, those efforts. Uh, the other component of this is being led by the Community Environmental Council. They're taking the lead on the education and outreach component, so going into the neighborhoods and, and uh, bringing people to the table to provide input on the, on the projects, talk about wildfire resilience and preparation. Um, so we're looking forward to this project. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thompson. All right, so we talked about different priorities and now moving on to a watershed by watershed feasibility and prioritization guide. So this is a big effort that we'd like to start in 2024 um, where we're really looking on a watershed by watershed basis. And I'm actually going to back up and go to a slide previously that I don't think I, that would be a better one to explain this and I don't think I explained. Um, so this is a good example. So on this map here, you know, we have San Jose Creek, and we have, you know, these features for all of our creeks right now, um, where, like I said, we've put basic information. Um, so here you can see this black line going along southern San Jose Creek represents the concrete channel. Um, these green polygons along the creek represent um, existing uh, native vegetation, and then these red dots represent um, invasive species. And then what we also have on here are some potential multi-benefit projects. And so the idea is that what we want to do is we want to go through creek by creek and look at all of the existing data, the existing information, and develop a prioritization guide and feasibility. So we're looking at things like concrete channels. Well, what can we do about them? What's feasible? Um, what are our options? And as well as other projects, for example, these, and now we're looking at Ellen Canto Creek, but these that were identified as some of these more comprehensive rain capture and green feature structures. Um, what's the feasibility of installing those? And do they make sense? Are there other projects on here? And also looking at our, our CIPs and other potential projects in those areas and starting to evaluate them, um, talk about alternatives, talk about feasibility, and make recommendations. Okay, so at this point, I, I've gone through most of our, our work efforts for the last year and our, our prioritization efforts. We are doing a lot in the city um, across all departments to further the goals of Creek and Watershed. I didn't have time to cover everything, but I do want to just give a few other projects and programs a, sh a shout out. Um, we mentioned Beautify Goleta to reduce trash pollution, but there's also Adopt-A-Park um, by the Parks Division um, and 
EDC's creek cleanups, who, as others have mentioned, are incredibly helpful. Um, Plastic-free Goleta, waste-free Goleta, and the Green Business Program. Um, we already talked about street sweeping and ongoing funding evaluation. And there's also been tons of outreach activities that we've been doing to try to get the public engaged. Um, Mr. Thompson and I both did creek tours during Creek Week. Um, we've had booths at city events. Um, and this division organized Creek Week with a lot of collaboration from the library and other entities, as well as just tons of social media, Monarch Press articles, surveys, and more. So we have a proposed target schedule. Um, we would like to develop a comprehensive creek monitoring program, which in 2024, um, which includes resuming the channel keeper sampling and also, you know, um, all the other factors we talked about, base flow evaluation, all the other things we want to evaluate and collect data on. And as budget allows, we want to begin implementation on that, um, at least partial implementation this year if possible. Um, and I already mentioned our watershed project feasibility and prioritization guide. So we want to develop a guide on a watershed by watershed basis on how to prioritize projects. And then continue to collaborate with the CIP division and evaluate existing CIPs for opportunities. And this year, you know, we'll be focusing on the full trash capture project as well as the fish passage um, and then ongoing grant and funding pursuit. <coughs> Another, you know, um, before I summarize all the actions and recommendations that we're having here today, I do want to bring up the recommendation to establish a watersheds and waste reduction standing committee. And so a little bit of history as to where that recommendation came from. On September 19th, we presented a waste reduction program update um, where we recommended changing the name of that standing committee from the solid waste standing committee to the waste reduction to better reflect what that program does. Um, but then there was discussion about, well, what about a forum for Creek and Watershed? And we were asked to evaluate that, evaluate the waste reduction standing committee as well as other standing committees and come back um, during this presentation with a recommendation. So that's what we're doing here, and we're recommending that we have a watersheds and waste reduction standing committee as a forum to, in between annual updates, to update um, key council members on Creek and Watershed, the Creek and Watershed Management Program, and also, um, you know, associated uh, Stormwater and Clean Water Act program compliance um, and the nexus therein, and also the nexus with the waste reduction programs. Um, so in summary, our recommendations are to proceed with the development of a comprehensive creek water, creek monitoring program rather, as budget and funding allow, proceed with the development of a watershed project feasibility and prioritization guide including habitat wildlife, looking at um, channel modifications, including concrete channels, water capture and green infrastructure, base flow and water flow, all of that. Allow staff to evaluate funding and resources for future work and adopt a resolution establishing the Watershed and Waste Reduction Standing Committee and resend um, 
the resolution 1008 that established the Solid Waste Standing Committee. And that concludes the presentation. Thank you, Ms. Nelson. We'll go to questions from council and then public comment. Councilmember Kazan? Yeah, first, the Solid Waste Standing Committee. You gotta admit, it sounds like we need a plumber. That's, uh, it just, uh, so it's good just <laughs> from the stand, that standpoint. Um, and I guess I, uh, the biggest thing, you know, I really appreciate the, uh, that prioritization guide that you're proposing there and report cards and so forth, because I think for the public, for ourselves, for granting agencies, seeing that we have some kind of vision for the different watersheds or the streams, here's how we're making sense of the various projects that we propose, here's how it creates some sort of progress. I think it brings everyone along and it, it's, um, I think that's really valuable. So rather than sort of an accounting exercise of here's how we count this here and this here and they aggregate it, but you don't really see a vision, you don't really see a set of goals, doing it like you're doing, like you're proposing to do, really gives a sense of, just like the, um, like we're doing with uh, Elwood Mesa or something like that, where there are goals that are there, where we know what we're driving for, we know how each of these small projects fit together to an, a broader vision, and so I, I really, I, I like that, and I, I just think it's really exciting that bringing our creeks, you know, each creek can go home and show its, you know, its report card to, uh, and I guess, you know, just the, the last uh, an observation that, um, you know, we, a lot of, for instance, when we looked at the, um, uh, to justify or explain the rationale for the sales tax, it was to avoid having our management plans just sit on the shelf. And it's good that we're now is clearly taking action to sort of get these things going. And it's, it, you know, that's well thought out and integrated. So I'm, I'm, I think that's great. That's all. Thank you. Any other questions? We'll go to public comment. Do you have one speaker slip for Brian Troutwine? And if any members of the Zoom webinar wish to speak, please raise your hand and we'll call on you. Uh, Mayor Pro Tem, Reyes Martin, and council members, I'm Brian Troutwine, uh, Senior Analyst, Watershed Program Director with the EDC. EDC is pleased uh, to see the CWMP come before you tonight, and we remain committed to working with the city to implement the CWMP. The council unanimously appro approved it uh, back in 2020, following the hard work of your staff, uh, consultants, and many community members. Surveys continue to show broad public support for protecting and restoring Goletas Creeks for fish and frogs and birds and mammals and turtles, um, but our watersheds they're tremendously important to us for so many reasons. They provide clean water for our aquifers and for our coastline. They are areas for passive recreation. They're buffers against climate change. And they're quiet areas for people to go and relax and enjoy nature and learn about nature and to escape the hustle and bustle of modern living. 
but our watersheds are degraded and polluted. They've been diverted and pumped dry. They've been locked up in sterile concrete ditches. Protected riparian habitat continues to be cleared. We see it all the time. Invasive plants are replacing natives, harming our wildlife. The very morphology, the shape of our creeks, which promotes biodiversity, the pools and riffles in our streams are being lost due to past attempts to control nature and confine our creeks. The CWMP represents a lifeline for our streams, but a plan alone is not enough. There's a dire need for funding and full-time creek staff to reverse the ongoing degradation and begin to recover Goleta's streams. And we need to only look as far as Santa Barbara to see a wildly successful creeks program that's fully staffed and has funding. And there's ample grant funding available to tackle even our creek's biggest problems. So as you consider budgets and CIPs and strategic planning, keep in mind that the public expects and deserves a fully funded and functioning creek program. If we're to succeed, the city needs full-time creek staff. There's so much going on with our parks and open spaces, our stormwater, our solid waste. As amazing as your staff is, they simply, they simply can't do it all. They can't do all those things and deliver a robust creeks program. Full-time creek staff would have time to coordinate with partners, to vet projects, apply for grants, manage consultants, and oversee restoration projects. And we also request that the city allocate substantially more funding to implement the CWMP. Measure B, which EDC and many groups worked hard to pass, received over 63% of the vote. Many people supported it to raise money for our creeks and watersheds. And it will begin to deliver revenue. Well, it already has begun to deliver revenue, I guess, last month. I want to point to the sign-on letter that 25 local organizations, including Chumash Agriculture and Conservation, submitted to you supporting full-time creek staff and more funding to get the job done. And that's needed if we're going to achieve the community's vision and goals for our creeks. So let's make it a, a resolution to hire full-time creek staff and to increase funding for the city's visionary, one-of-a-kind creek and watershed management plan. And then we can give the community what they really want, healthy creeks. Thank you. Our next speaker on Zoom is Molly Troop. If you could please accept the prompts that are on your screen. Good evening, Mayor Perotti and council members. My name is Molly Troop, and I am the Science and Program Manager at Santa Barbara Channel Keeper. Channel Keeper has been an active participant in the CWMP Technical Advisory Committee. We've supported the creation and the approval of the Creek and Watershed Management Plan by the City Council, and we're one of uh, 25 local organizations who believe that to take the or <clears throat> who believe that to take the next important step of the Creek and Watershed Management Plan implementation, full-time staff and additional funding is desperately needed. As our monitoring data has shown, the important creeks and watersheds in Goleta are impaired. And to change the trajectory of creek and watershed health, dedicated staff and funding are necessary. We support and strongly advocate for both. Thank you for your consideration. And our final speaker on Zoom is Robert Zaida. You can please accept the prompts on your screen. Good evening, Mayor and 
Good evening, Mayor and Council Members. Uh, as a 50-year resident of Goleta and a, a supporter of Beautify Goleta, uh, my concerns with these proposals come down to the concrete removal. Meanwhile, we're putting in concrete more on the San Jose Creek and including a bicycle path underneath there. So it's a sort of pick and choose what's gonna stay and what's gonna go, kind of like with your plastic free Goleta, where meanwhile you hand out sandbags that are made of plastic that deteriorate. If you wanna take a look over at your crib wall on Cathedral Oaks and the, the sandbags out there have deteriorated to where there's weeds growing through them. Meanwhile, where has that plastic gone? Right down into your creeks that you're trying to save. As much as I want them healthy and all that too, we have a life to live that requires plastic. All our our cleanups through, which I've done the creek cleanups with Brian, uh, we use plastic bags there that are a one-time use. So, and your, your removal of invasive species, well, you're only gonna remove so many of them because your eucalyptus trees are non-native, but we're gonna save those because the butterflies are in them. Well, there's all sorts of other things to think about. So it's all all fine and dandy, but there's a whole big picture instead of just looking at one little thing. So well done on the presentation. Just think about things before they they get put forth. Thank you. And there are no more public speakers. Thank you. We'll go to council deliberations. Yeah, I did have a question. Uh, as I understand, we have, there's a halftime person proposed uh, that would come up for next year, but there's also an intern, and I believe, Mr. Thompson, there's a new person being added on your staff that is doing overlapping kinds of work. Can you guys clarify? Uh, all of those, uh, or if no, that's fine too. <laughs> um, Council Member Cowson. Sounds like there's a lot going on okay. in response to Mr. Troutwine's Mr. concerns that we are actually producing a fair amount of support on this regard. Uh, Mayor Prodi, Council Member Kasdan, uh, we will be proposing a halftime uh, part, uh, halftime a person to do creeks and watershed management in our environmental services division. As your director, I've looked pretty carefully at our workload, our alignment of what each division does, that kind of thing. And at this time, uh, we will be proposing that the position is actually in the environmental services division where we're doing the bulk of the creeks and watershed um, uh, management program work. Uh, and we're doing the stormwater management program. So I think that kind of answers your question with that. But there is no other uh, uh, position being proposed at all. Is there an intern? There, there was is that no one intern point. being no? proposed. No. Oh. oh well then. But never yeah. mind. <laughs> I thought I remembered uh, something like that. Right. And but so it's it, it is a halftime. Uh, right now t we are proposing public works. We're proposing in our uh, upcoming budget cycles that uh, uh, it be in the. Uh, environmental services division okay and the um, for 
Mr. Thompson, it's an open space work and not necessarily, I mean, it might be potentially overlap with creek and watershed, but that's incidental. They're, that person is primarily going to be focused on whether it's Elwood or Lake Los Carneros or whatever. And Mayor Prodi, Councilmember Kasdan, that's a very good point. We are very dynamic in public works. We do obviously share staff amongst divisions uh, quite frequently, almost all the time. So, so I don't want anybody to get the idea that we're really siloed. Uh, you know, this person will be working hand in hand with Mr. Thompson and his division uh, quite a bit with those projects. Also working hand in hand with uh, Ms. Glazier and her division as she delivers capital projects. So, uh, you know, there's a lot going on, and we we we. I don't want to give that impression that we're that okay. siloed. I'm good. Hey, thank you. Mayor Brody. Thank you. Um, um, I guess my question <laughs> follows um, that. Uh, as far as the halftime um, person that's being um, suggested, is this person going to be knowledgeable with creeks? I mean, I have that strong background. Um, I know. Uh, you know, creeks and 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 watershed um, uh, management. Uh, I mean, it, that would be the the qualifications for this person to come to us to be on staff. Can anybody answer that, Mr. Ebling? Maybe. Um, Mayor Prodi, I I can answer that. Um, this position, it's incredibly important that we have somebody qualified, preferably licensed, because. Um, this program is going to require a lot of rigorous data evaluation, somebody who understands the larger aspects of watershed planning and protection, um, as well as, you know, has an awareness of the regulatory aspects of, as well. Great. Well, that's good to hear. And then um, the idea of getting an intern, might there be some grant funding available that we could start looking into um, to have an intern. I mean, I can understand the need for a full-time um, Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm wondering if there is that a possibility because it's a very ambitious and impressive um, goals that have been identified. Um, it's, it's all these words are words that I came up to in my mind as I was listening to the presentation it's very exciting so i'm, I'm wondering how um we can handle all all this ambitious um uh, goals that we have set um, without having more help so i guess my question was interns <laughs> um mayor Prodi, you know we are looking at grants that will allow for, we're, we're really looking at any grants we can to fund this. Um, and with respect to interns, you know, this division is onboarding an intern, although they aren't specifically for Creek and Watershed. As Charlie mentioned, you know, that we are dynamic, so um, they certainly will get involved in some aspects. In terms of funding, you know, there's definitely grants we're looking at. Um, I think there's also recognition that, you know, um, this is a, a very comprehensive program and a comprehensive plan. And I think that it's important to really look to the future and look what, what it is we wanna accomplish and develop like a funding plan long-term. So, yeah. um, but, but right now, you know, we're, we're working with what we've got. 
Well, I just want you to know I so appreciated um, this update and um, presentation. Thank you so much for all the work you put into this. Thank you. Councilmember Richards. Thank you. Yeah, I actually had another follow-up question about this position. Um, uh, the, so the halftime position that was uh, that was mentioned um, for environmental services would that be uh, shared with another department then and be halftime in another, and so it would be a full-time position or it would just be halftime only. Um. Councilmember Richards, I, you know, first of all, some of those details do have to be worked out um, and planned out with city manager. Um, I think the current thought is that we would have a licensed professional that would work half time on stormwater aspects as um, we'll have a lot of new requirements coming down the pipeline with stormwater. But uh, again, these are, these are tentative recommendations the details still have to be sorted out um, come budget time. Understood. Yeah, I, I realize that we're having a discussion about our budget process, and, and we haven't even gotten our budget, so this is kind of a, a preview to that. So at least it, at least it gives us an opportunity now to um, you know, share our thinking about you know, where, where we are with our priorities. Um, I, I would just also add that you know, it se seems like a, a big... Uh, a heavy job for a licensed professional that would be a half-time position. So I don't know, maybe there are people out there that are qualified for that, that want a half-time job, but um, that would just be a concern that I would have about that, about like, you know, making it worth someone's while to make sure it's a full-time position. All right, that's all. And, and just to make one comment, uh, Madam Mayor Pro Tem and Councilmember Richards, um, it is a budget discussion, but I just want to remind the council that it's actually a carryover from last budget. So it's a little better than how you're characterizing it. Uh, it was requested back in June for the halftime position. And we said that we would come back at mid-year to see if there was any savings and if we could then do a budget enhancement and find enough money to add it then. So it, we are planning to do that uh, should you move ahead tonight and win we come back with the second quarter report, it is our plan to recommend an addition for enough money for a half-time position. So it doesn't have to wait to next fiscal year um, is, is our proposal. Thank you. Councilmember Kiriakou. Thank you. Uh, so to begin with, I'm, I'm going into my, um, my fifth year on council, and this is probably for me a top yeah. five report that I've seen since I've been here. Uh, so I just want to start there. Um, it's very compelling. Um, I'm so excited at how much has already been done since council took action a couple of years ago. Um, I, I think this plan helped motivate and galvanize members of this council to finally take important steps related to funding the city as a whole because it gave us the opportunity to operationalize this program and this plan specifically. Um, so I'm really glad that we're here tonight. Um, the, the one question that I have before I kind of get into comments is um, how do we be assured that as we begin to implement um, this plan with a, with a new committee, how do we ensure that the staffing is adequate so that we don't get into scarcity mentality, um, rush, 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 
and start to un unwittingly undo some of the progress that's been made over the last several years. Um, I, I heard a comparison in public comment to uh, the city of Santa Barbara's uh, Creeks program. It's important to note that that's a specific special tax that only goes to that Creeks program. It's a huge investment by the city of Santa Barbara and it funds a very robust program. While we have a Measure B spending plan and we have signaled an interest in trying to uh, accomplish the goals of this plan, we don't have anything resembling that kind of infrastructure. But my fear is that because we don't have that, we won't do enough. So how do we ensure, if it ends up being a part-time person, how do we ensure that they have the expertise, that they have the commitment, that they have the availability, and everything else? Because there have been other times since I've been on council where I felt like we've underinvested in what I thought was an important position, where it was actually really like we're hiring for someone where it's a special profession. And we ended up just kind of administ administratively, and I'm not trying to point fingers at anyone who was or is here now, um, by, by doing so, I felt like it actually kind of stymied progress in a, in a function that I thought was important. And so I want to avoid that at all costs with this program, because I think this is fundamental to what we're trying to accomplish as a city right now. So how are we going to be assured that a part-time position really does make the difference and help get things going off to a good start, because a good start is critical? Um, how do we ensure that happens? Councilmember Kiriako, I'll be honest, I don't have all the answers. Um, it was somewhat rhetorical. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, I mean, this is something, of course, I'm thinking about, and as is everybody involved in the Creek and Watershed Management Program. And, you know, I, I think, again, this is going to be a conversation with city manager's office and other staff and other people involved. And, you know, also considering whatever comes out of the work efforts that we do this year in terms of really looking at prioritization and um, what, what we can and want to implement, we'll also have a better idea of the work effort and um, the scope of what's going to be involved. Um, and, and also thinking about, you know, how, how we're going to fund it. Okay, thank you. Uh, so then just a couple uh, comments. Um, uh, a few years ago, the larger department was, in my opinion, under-resourced. Didn't have enough filled positions, didn't have enough vacant positions to fill. We were short on engineers, we were short on a lot of things, we were short on administrative support. And uh, the council really took a bit of a risk because we didn't know what was going to happen with the sales tax. And we made a decision that we were going to invest in the department as a whole. We believed it was needed. Um, we had to be able to go home and sleep at night as a council and feel like we were doing our job. So now that we've done that, and I feel like that has had some, some positive impacts, I have to decide as a council member as we go into the work plan meetings, uh, which will then help inform our budget, which we'll then we'll adopt in June, I, I just have to say if, if there's something I, I need to go to the mattresses on, it's trying to get a full-time position for this department um, for this specific function. And if it means when we are 
in the work plan meetings if we have to maybe make a tough choice, if we have to say, yeah, maybe we'll slow that one thing down, or if we have to try and find an efficiency or something we are planning to do, maybe we could do it the following year. Um, as we sit here right now, absent additional information, that's the way I'm leaning. I, that's a, a tough choice I'm willing to make. Um, so when we, when we have the work plan uh, meetings, I assume it'll be in, in Mar late March or April sometime, um, I'm hoping that we'll have an item on the work plan that is how to turn this from a half, they anticipated half-time position into a full-time position. Uh, with not just, and not just the hours, but the specific uh, duties, span of authority, um, the, the job description requirements and specs needed to really get what's going to be needed to galvanize this effort and just propel it forward. Thank you. Thank you. I don't have any additional questions, but I do want to <clears throat> echo, I think, what others have shared about what an excellent presentation this was, um, not only in how it was prepared and shared tonight, but just the breadth of work that is happening um, is, is truly impressive. Um, and I was really happy in particular to see the <coughs> kind of whole team um, here today. Um, and you can really see, and I hope the public can see, the way that you all work together. Your programs really, in many ways, complement <coughs> one another, intersect, um, and how important it is uh, to have that communication and work going on together collaboratively. So that was really um, excellent. I think it's, it's clear to me when you look at any map of our community that watersheds, and I would say also parks and open space, are just core and huge to our community. Um, so, I mean, similarly to Councilmember Kiriakov, there are areas that I really want to, um, you know, advocate heavily for. It's not only watersheds, but I know that we likely need some more help in parks and open space, too. Um, so I'm looking forward to those conversations. And just uh, thank you again for the presentation tonight. So do we have any uh, further deliberations, or are we ready for a motion from someone? I can. I have one question. Sure. Uh, the uh, there is that last. So in there. Oh right. The appointments to the watershed and waste reduction standing committee. How do you? Uh, I guess for the mayor, their recommendation was just to change the existing committee and its members into the new committee. Uh, would that be then the part of the recommendation? In other words, amend the recommendation, uh, recommendation C to say make appointments to the existing th this members of the and solid have waste. the same committee members. If I guess the question of if they are willing to. Well, stay. I can tell you as a member of the uh, of the existing committee, in the since 2020 we have met zero times. So I have the. <laughs> I have the time on uh, that regard to add, right? Am I right? And We've I would say zero. I'm, I'm interested uh, in. Do we know yeah. who the is it? Is it the two of you? It's us. Great. Yeah. I, I had a question just about the procedure. Uh, is is it? Aren't uh, committee appointments up the mayor's uh, yeah. prerogative, and then we would ratify that? But this is a renaming. We're just renaming the existing committee. Okay. Correct. Okay. I'm looking to staff. Are there any substantive changes to the 
It, it seems like the purview is different. I can't. Oh, is your mic, is your mic on? I can't hear. Okay. You know, I, I think you guys have the full prerogative at this point to do do what you want. I mean, technically, yes, we're changing the name, but as you see from the description in the staff report, if you want to get technical, you're actually a, a disbanding the old one. committee and creating a new one. So that probably, uh, Councilmember Richards is probably correct. Um, so our process would be, as you say, if there's concurrence among everyone, to keep the same members, I mean, it's up to you guys. And, and, and we wanted to leave it there. And if you right. wanted to change, you can change. If you don't want to change, you can't. But I think the mayor does have a role in that final decision. I thought that standing committees were a vote of the council. I believe you're correct. I see. Deborah. Yes. <laughs> correct. Come on. Good evening, Mayor and members of the council. The mayor is correct. Um, it's the vote of the council. It's not one that the mayor appoints. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. Okay. There Sir, we if go. If you are both willing, is there, are there any? That's good for me. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> and the mayor approves. <laughs> Excellent. Well, in that case, I'm ready to make a motion. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I'll move that we adopt resolution number 24 next in line entitled a resolution of the city council of the city of Goleta, California, establishing the water sheds and waste reduction standing committee and dissolving the solid waste standing committee and then um, appointing uh, council members Richards and, and Kasdan. Kasdan. <laughs> to the uh, it's only been eight years standing committee. <laughs> Is there a second? I'll second. We have a roll call, please. Councilmember Richards, yes. Councilmember Kiriako, aye. Councilmember Gazden, aye. Mayor Pro Tempore Reyes Martin, aye. And Mayor Perotti, aye. Great, thank you. Our remaining item is uh, C3. This item C3, Goleta Valley Library book van update. Okay, uh, good evening, Madam Mayor, members of City Council. Uh, the last item before you this evening is an item on the Goleta Valley Library book van. Um, <clears throat> just a little bit of a background so that uh, everyone's up to speed. Uh, back in fiscal year 1920, uh, we received a $200,000 grant from the State of California to conduct a pilot program for satellite services to Isla Vista. Uh, the book van was purchased, I believe, uh, in 2020 and uh, began offering services in October of 21. 
um, the two hundred thousand dollars cover the capital costs and outfitting of the book van itself, and then the residual amount was used to provide funding to Isla Vista um, staffing to serve Isla Vista. As of December twenty twenty two, there is no money uh, remaining in that grant. It's been fully expended. In June of twenty twenty three. Uh, your council adopted the fiscal year 23-24 and 24-25 budget, which included 125000 for continuing book van operations in Ala Vista. And the expansion into Goleta and Zone 4, with that came a request uh, to the county to provide additional funding. Uh, the book van has been operating Ala Vista at several locations, including the Community Services District's uh, Community Center, the elementary school, Friendship Manor, and a number of other locations in Isla Vista. At that time, the council also talked about potentially expanding um, to, to locations such as the Positano Apartments, Girls Inc., um, the Community Center, uh, other areas near uh, populated areas such as Pacific Oaks Apartments and Matilda Park. Uh, as part of the exercise in, in uh, pursuing this, um, staff did determine it, if there was a sufficient space and safe areas for the book vans to operate uh, and set up uh, safely and provide service. As part of that exercise on August 7th, staff went to the library, the city's library advisory commission uh, to discuss additional sites um, as well as possible pop-up events. We kind of took a whole holistic uh, view of what could be done with book van schedules as well as potentially changing hours um, and schedule locations uh, to better uh, utilize the time that's been spent uh, providing services in Isla Vista. These potential uh, schedules were all reviewed by the Library Advisory Commission, um, and we have those available uh, for a future um, briefing if that's the desire of council. Um, at that same time, uh, shortly after um, the June adoption, the county's library advisory commission also met um, to discuss a potential book van uh, funding uh, there was actually a proposal from the city of santa barbara and at the time the ivcsd um, uh, informed the county's library advisory commission that they uh, were essentially happy with the service they had been receiving so there's kind of a chronology here of of dates and times um, Going back to the discussion on the book van, it currently serves 10 sites. Uh, we provided a, a, the uh, flyer showing the actual schedule and locations. Um, the book van currently provides 20 hours worth of actual service in terms that folks can use, but it's comprised of a total of 30 hours, which includes the setup and breakdown time uh, necessary for, for the shifts. Um, as part of the June council meeting, uh, council directed staff to increase the book van sites from 20 hours to 30 hours per week. And one important consideration was that if the number of stops increased, then obviously there would be uh, an increase in the amount of setup time and breakdown. Um, the book van is currently staffed by one library assistant and one library page at each stop. Uh, we do this for two reasons. Uh, one, to facilitate uh, the setup and breakdown but two, for safety, um, to ensure that people are not kind of isolated by themselves. Um, 
Part of this involves setting up sandwich boards, rolling out book carts. Um, the items that you would do at, at a school sometimes are different than you would do at a retirement home. And so accordingly, there's some curating that needs to occur before those uh, visits take place. In looking at additional sites um, uh, for the Library Advisory Commission, uh, we really looked at access as being the primary um, factor in terms of being able to set up, being able to move things around, having visitors or patrons actually be able to um, use the services. Obviously, safety is an important component and the actual ability to actually find parking, as in places in Isla Vista can be very difficult. Um, these, all of these were taken into consideration and uh, presented at that August 7th meeting. The other part was uh, talking about event-based site visits that could include um, some of the things that had been done in the past in Isla Vista, like Earth Day, um, Isla Vista Rec, um, Halloween, um, Parks District, Halloween, not, not the other one, um, Children's Block Party, and even occasionally special events like um, site visits to Glida Valley Junior High, as well as um, I think we had one for the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce uh, last September. Um, in terms of the update on book van funding, in September of 2023, September 19th, the County Board of Supervisors approved the library's countywide library system agreement. This is the one that is done with the county and the managing partners of each zone for which Galita is uh, the managing partner for Zone 4. Um, that included an additional 12500 out of their small library fund, um, which is different than their per capita amount, which is shown on the following page. Um, this was done in, in response to the request of $25,000 that did not materialize to the full extent. And then the uh, breakdown is provided on page 3. Just as a point of reference, um, if you look at zone four in table one, Galita shows 63,333 as the population. Uh, two years ago, Galita and Isla Vista were both combined and now they're being reported separately. And the reason I point this out gets to the next section. As part of the September 19th, 2023 action by the Board of Supervisors, the board also directed the county staff to explore the potential for Isla Vista Community Services District, or IVCSD, to administer library services and receive the county per capita funding for Isla Vista area. As I said previously, this once before had been joined together. On November 8, 2023, city staff met with um, staff from Santa Barbara County's Community Services Department, as well as the IVCSD to discuss possible options and paths related to the BOS uh, direction provided in September. City and county staff were invited to attend a future IVCSD board meeting and be available for questions on the potential change or redirection of funding. Uh, last month on January 23rd, the IVCSD board met. Um, Mr. Robert Nisbet and I attended the meeting and uh, Essentially, the IVCSD board uh, decided to, to, uh, to make a motion and voted to request that the county construct a new library zone for the area of Isla Vista and UCSB with IVCSD serving as the zone administrator. 
Um, so the conclusion based on this kind of timeline has been there's been different iterations about, you know, we go back to June when the budget's approved, we go to September when the County Board of Supervisors makes the approval of that library agreement to meetings with IVCSD and the county in September and October, and then ultimately uh, the January meeting that happened uh, maybe two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Um, so based on that, the current route um, and stops, uh, staff doesn't recommend a change uh, given that the amount of funding has not changed significantly. Um, and essentially, uh, particularly in light of the potential for a future change in per capita funding coming currently to the city of Goleta that could be redirected to Isla Vista. Uh, while we know it's not a foregone conclusion that such a change would, would occur, it's important to know that even if it did, it would take probably at least a year, if not significantly longer, to actually be able to uh, implement um, at that time. So with that, that's why we're recommending to maintain the status quo, given the, uh, the changes that in the landscape from probably about eight months ago to now. And so I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you, Mr. Valdez. Uh, questions from council? Councilmember, oh, you undid yours. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Um, I guess, um, so first to be clear, the amount, the cost, including overhead and all other expenses associated with providing the service, the book van service that we're providing, comes out less than the per capita plus the small uh, library fund amounts if you're talking about the current setup of the 20 hours per week that yeah. requires 30 hours of service it does cost less than the identified Isla Vista per capita and small library fund amount of I believe it's excuse me 239,000 or so yeah um, Okay, because I think anything, you know, particularly going forward uh, to the extent that they go further in separating, that would be a gift of public funds if we, uh, you know, provided service that didn't include the, the full cost of our, and our taxpayers shouldn't be paying that. Uh, I would just note sort of parenthetically, I looked up in uh, Google Maps, Ivy Theater, and Embarcadero del Norte is 4.3 miles from the Goleta Library. Uh, sort of the IV center they list as uh, 4.1 miles. My house, where I live, 5.8 miles. So the idea that people in IV are sort of uh, utterly separated from the Goleta Library and, ha and hence should have no need to support the Goleta Library, that they wouldn't think of using the Goleta Library, uh, that apparently they don't own cars in IV, I think is um, inappropriate, inaccurate. Uh, to the extent that people in Elwood are able to get over to the library, people in IV probably can get there. But to the extent I'm just getting, you know, it's just late and I'm getting cranky. Uh, so. Um, Thank you for the, the report and the analysis, and um, 
Yeah, I appreciate it. All right, Councilmember Kiriakou. Thank you, Madam Mayor Pro Tem. Um, I guess a question for staff: Would would the action of Isla Vista becoming more like an in the you know the CSD the the, the service area becoming its own zone? Would that in any way? position us to serve them in a way similar to how we serve Buellton and Solving. I recognize that Buellton and Solving are in our zone and we serve them with full cost recovery. So I guess my question is, would having a sort of a, a direct agreement with the library if we wanted to enter uh, with, the, uh, with Isla Vista, assuming we wanted to enter into one uh, to serve them uh, when they wouldn't be in our zone, would that give us an enhanced ability to ensure that we actually get full cost recovery? I think that rationale is, is along the thoughts that I have. I think the difference here is um, Buellton and Solvang actually have a physical location. Uh, one of the things that came up at the IVCSD meeting is um, it's hard to have a library if you don't have a building. And so would they create a new zone that's not for me to, to pine on, but it seems hard to do that if you don't have a physical structure. Now, IVCSD has talked about exploring and, and finding infrastructure, um, a building to support it, and we provided them with you know what we think would they would need to do. Um, but this is really unique because Isla Vista, if you look at the table, um, most of the other places do not have you know a that kind of relationship. Um, essentially, the, what they could do is they could take their $238,000 and decide they they were directed to provide that money directly from the county to Isla Vista. They could technically contract back with us. That would be one thing they could do. And that's one of the things that IVCSD discussed. And the difference being here, you know, two years ago, Galita and IV were the same bucket of money. And so there was money flowing to the Goleta Valley Library, and now it, it seems to usurp that money without backfilling it anyway. Okay, so then just in terms, and maybe this is just sort of a going forward, looking ahead kind of a question. Um, if we find ourselves in a position where we're asked to try and serve Isla Vista in a, a contractor type role, how do we, as an or as a Goleta Valley Public Library that um, still needs, you know, will presumably still have the same size collection, if not larger, still have you know significant staffing needs. How will we ensure that we're able to have the staff resources to kind of pivot from a a budget world where we can't count on there being an RFP or a contract or whatever? to being able to then pivot to providing the service without creating unnecessary and costly inefficiencies. You know, do we, you know, in other words, do we have to potentially staff down to regular positions or, uh, or staff down a regular position and then be prepared to 
go through a, t a hiring process or work with a temporary agency. You know, th these are the kinds of things I'm not sure everyone involved in this process has thought of yet. I I'm sure on some level it probably seems like really easy to be like, oh, well, we'll just keep <coughs> working with them, right? You know, it just will we'll have control, we'll make the decision. Um, I'm just wondering if the, um, the planning effort for this potential process has gotten to that stage yet. Um, and, and if you don't know the answer, I, I don't necessarily expect you to. <laughs> I can go after you, Jaime. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say that meeting was three weeks ago, and it was essentially a request from the IV Community Services District Board to the county. I don't know if there's even been any discussion or thought or analysis done. Um, the one thing that came across was this would be a unique ask, and secondly, it would probably be a lengthy ask in terms of all of those kind of decision points that would need to take place. Um, so that's a long-winded answer of saying I don't know exactly, but I think that has been contemplated, and yeah, it creates risk to the city in terms of how do you plan, you know, and then do you have an, a, a quick surge where you have to staff up, or for some reason, IVCSD, if they formed their own zone and decided to go with another contractor, for example, mm -hmm. another zone uh, administrator to, to provide the service, mm -hmm. how quickly can you react? Right, right. Um, and, and if I can just add a little bit of that to that, because um, I think it's a great question. And, and to add to what Jaime said about the decision-making process that occurred three weeks ago, they had three options in front of them. I, I don't remember all three of them, but one of them was to ask to contract back with the, with, the, with the city of Goleta. So that was one of their three options, and I think they, they still need to do some work to decide which one's best. But if, that, if they pursue that option, absolutely, that's a decision of this council. They would be their own zone, and we would be coming back to you for you to decide if you wanted to contract back with them. Uh, not, a, not a given, so that would be a decision for a future date. On your question, yeah, it's, it's not as simple as it sounds necessarily. The con but the concept is full cost recovery. Um, the devil's in the details on how you do full cost recovery. But we, we've learned a lot about the devil in the details, <laughs> and we would make sure that we would do it so that we did get full cost recovery, and that would include making sure it did not adversely impact staffing and services at the main library. So that, that is a part of doing full cost recovery that you don't have situations where you haven't fully covered the cost so that it some some then impacts us adversely. And I would just say, by way of example, we learned a lot by how the county sheriff does full cost recovery, and they do a really good job making sure they get full cost recovery from the city of Goleta for sheriff services, and it doesn't impact their own sheriff services. So we would have to put, if that was the direction to contract back, we would have to put work into that and create a model to make sure we were getting full cost recovery. Okay. And, and then just to um, just to kind of kind of finish my line of questioning here, it, it would seem if we start going down this path, then the the flexibility that we've had up to now to try and make this program work, um, and for the record, I think at a significant loss. Right? We we put one hundred twenty five thousand dollars into the program. We got. 12,500 in additional small library funds. And then the rest went to, came, you know, the rest of the funding, I don't know where 
where, because um, I think it's $190,000 to manage the program for 20 hours. Yes, I mean, the other part of it is that we're not fully charging them the cost of the proportionate share of black gold, for example. Um, mm -hmm. We have that as a fixed cost because we have it no matter what. Um, there's a, I think, in my opinion, there's a difference between cost recovery and cost allocation. I mean, you can allocate costs legally, but are you really recovering them is, is somewhat nuanced. And so without getting into a big discussion there, that's one thing we run into with the sheriff's office. You can <coughs> allocate things that you want and, and you can make the findings, but the cost recovery in the sense of like, what does it really actually cost mm -hmm. sometimes aren't exactly the so, same. So then I think just kind of continuing with looking ahead, something for us to kind of keep an eye on is we're gonna lose flexibility to make this program work because right now it seems like the only way it's been able to work has been to take money out of out of what fun, what funds the the operation and the overall capacity of the library to serve its entire service area, plus Measure L, plus City General Fund. So if we go to this model, then um, the the library will lose the 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 per capita that's associated with the library being able to maintain its capacity with that type of collection size the types of programming that they offer throughout the zone and, and at the library physical location. So then I think the, the thing we really have to all kind of noodle on collectively here is when our hands are more tied, because you know it's one thing for the Glita Valley Library to have funding coming from Measure L, and you can say the book van is a Measure L, is a Glita Valley Public Library program. But if you're contracting with another agency that is not part of the Glita Valley Public Library anymore because it's part of the, I don't know what the county would call it, um, but it would be a different library name for a different zone. We w I don't think we could use Measure L to kind of backfill any of this anymore. So um, the program, the program, the staffing, the, 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 you know, the access to collections and all the, I think there's a lot of things that would have to be worked out so that um, at the end of the day, they don't end up with a net uh, less valuable program um, with, the, with the rich richness that it offers. So it'll be interesting to kind of watch this going forward. I appreciate that Isla Vista is trying to kind of remove one cook from the kitchen and make it more of a, a binary back and forth process rather than having multiple agencies and and different you know potentially different viewpoints and try to solve the problem how do we all work together and serve each other you know effectively um, but the devil's in the details as was said earlier tonight about something else so I'll be very curious going forward how do they anticipate these things um, you know, maybe the per capita is enough, maybe it's not. Um, I think we're about to find out. Yeah, and I think one thing I would just add is, you know, it, it is a zero-sum game, right? At the end of the day, you have to have the things that line up or they don't, and either one thing's subsidizing or it isn't. Um, but you could see, uh, just from the table, um, it's not very clear how the small library fund amounts are distributed. I don't know why Montecito with 9,080 people got $50,000 and Isla Vista with 22,461 got 12,500. Um, 
I guess we could kind of ask and try to get back and forth, but I've never really gotten a, a clear understanding of how that my, very my, easy the county per my capita. My sense is that had a lot to do with the county trying to find a way to match what the friends groups were doing. And Montecito has a very active and financially uh, generous friends group. That's what I recall watching okay. during their meetings when they've discussed this. Yeah, and, and I don't know. I love this. I don't, I'm not aware has a friends group, and you know, Belita does. And so I don't know how I don't know how that all calculates. But um, I've just seen in different years differing amounts of money. Same thing with the cannabis, right? And so all I know is I can see what Galita gets, and then kind of go from there. Councilmember Richards. Thank you. Yeah, um, and similarly, uh, Santa Maria got eight thousand nine hundred dollars, and and that's. Oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah. I, I'm sorry, just because I was at the Library Advisory Committee meeting where they talked about this. That is actually for them. That's for the City of Santa Maria's library to provide services to Sisquoc and Casmalia, and some other um, other areas. I don't know what the level of service was going to be or how many hours, but that was what the boards um, that that was what was being asked of the board to approve was to provide some service via a book van from Santa Maria. Yeah, and usually, the uh, small library fund is not given to the lead zone administrator, which that that's why I didn't understand how it got there either. So, yeah. Uh, so, well, my question then is. Uh, so this is the first time that, that we've received a, a budget or a table like this with the agreement that has Isla Vista broken out from Galita. Is that correct? So this is the second year. Second year. Yeah. The, the so second. the first year was 22-23. Okay. And that, that made us go, hey, what's going on here? And then quickly, the other thing is the fiscal year. Um, usually we like to have a fiscal year that starts July 1st. Um, the countywide library agreement tends to lag quite a bit because it has so many different jurisdictions. So I believe the board approved it in September, right? It didn't get to us until, I think we took it in, no, it was like October or November. Um, so you're, you know, you're already kind of like four months behind or, mm -hmm. or more. And so that makes it difficult. And so when you're looking backwards, it's not like everything starts July 1st and everything's, you know, we've got all this information in March to start July 1st, it's actually you get the information in September and then you're making the decision to join in a couple months later. So so my question then is, uh, with it being broken out like this, uh, do we have to account or report our budget differently to the county or in terms of where the money goes or that 239000 do we have to show them that that money is all going to Isla Vista, or how do we report that, or is it just part of our budget? Uh, Councilmember Richards, um, no, and the the agreement is is broad, and you know lays out in broad ways our responsibility for the entire zone, and that we then use the funding sources for the in, for the entire zone. Uh, we were a little concerned this year based on what happened that when we got the contract in, in September that they, they might add some language that was more specific on how it was meant to be used. But that gets, you know, that gets to the fundamental difference here about the, the funds where they're taking, you know, by separating them and starting to take this position that they might break away and form their own zone, that they're at least mentally taking that position that that money should only be used in Isla Vista and should not support the, the base of what supports the current zone four. And so that's, that's, you're getting to the fundamental kind of difference here. But as the contract is designed right now, I think it recognized, you know, free public library system. 
you know, everyone has to contribute to support the base. Uh, and that's how it's drafted now, very broadly. Okay, all right, that, that's helpful. Yeah, because it, it, it implies that there's uh, something, or maybe they're just giving us Well, what's interesting is the actual agreement itself doesn't say that $12,500 will be specifically for increased book fan service, right? So it doesn't say that in the contract. It just says it in the board letter. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if we're being very picky, right, I mean, that's there's a reason the $12,500 is there, but does it say it to the level of detail like line items you will use $65,000 for this or whatever? It doesn't do that at all. Okay, thank you. Paula, oh, sorry, Mayor Brody. That's okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I am so struggling here with this. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just, do you think, uh, I'm wondering if Isla Vista, you know, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that they really wanted to have um, a building where the books would be and I, I, I did they not really want a book van originally and but they've always wanted a, a building that was like a library and they suggested doing it in their um, community center um you know I, I'm just you know it it's it, it's confusing to me because I know how hard it was for us to take over management of um of the Goleta Library and all the hurdles. And, and I'm wondering if they've thought of it through well enough um, to know what they're getting themselves into. Um, we did it, but it was it took a while. So I don't know, I'm just really trying to figure out um, what's the best thing to do. Um, Madam Mayor, if I may, um, at, the IVCSD, <laughs> at the IVCSD board meeting, uh, we did share with them that Goleta was one of the more recent um, zones that uh, were formed, that the city of Goleta obviously took uh, the managing role. Um, but actually, I think it was a year ago or two years ago that Carpinteria did it as well. And uh, it took them, I think, over a year to get going. And it's a lot of work. And it's they actually have a building, right? And so that would probably be more akin to what, ha what they would be looking at because of the size of the zone is... Mm -hmm. 16,500 or so. I know it's not apples to apples, but I think it's a little bit more in line um, with that versus, um, you know, the city of Goleta's lead zone, zone four of 110,000 people. Uh, it's definitely about an order of magnitude smaller. And then the other part of it was um, just, you know, that the amount of time, I think, is, is the other part. It's it's not just you set it up. And uh, I think Mayor Perotti's correct. Um, IVCSD has wanted to have its own building. And I, I believe uh, our former library director talked to him about you know what, what that would cost in reality to have it, and it just didn't really add up and, and make sense for them. And so again, we go back to this, and I, I hate stressing it, but it was a pilot program that, that has now become something that is expected to continue. Yeah, and there's just no way if they were to um, form their own um, district that they'd be done by June. I mean, it's going to take them a, a while if they if they go that that right. direction. I'm looking at the. <laughs> sorry, I know you've been waiting, so go ahead. That, no, I guess to uh, go to your point, uh, the 
if you remember, for us, in some ways, it was easier because we had a library already operating. We had a staff that was already there, and we just sort of converted them to Goleta. But it wasn't that we were starting fresh. In the case of uh, Isla Vista, it really be, I think the, your parallel to Carpinteria is similar in that sense, right? They didn't have a branch existing that they could just convert. Or did they? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So then Isla... Yeah, the IV one's going to take a while because they have to start from scratch, not get a building, figure out staffing, how much, you know, it's just, it would be, um, and yeah, it would be a real challenge for them to do that. When you think also, how do you have adequate hours? How many, how do you have an adequate inventory of books? It just seems like that is really daunting. But it's not, ultimately, it won't be our, problem <laughs> yeah and I, I would just add like you you need to have two people at a time it, it, you know the idea of having just one person there is just it's not a safe working environment to have that um, and I think the other part though that's a little bit different when Galita took over my recollection is that uh, part of that required Galita to take on Buellton and Salve within the next following year right and you had a one year to, to add those two so that was a little, another complicated two-step. And if I can make one comment mm -hmm. kind of back to uh, one of the purposes here today, I mean, part of it is to have this discussion and understand um, where this might be going and, and, you know, be able to think thoughtful about it. But also, is it, this is pre-budget planning for us also. So um, we don't, we believe it's going to take them a while, but... Um, that we don't know for sure. And so we're, we're having the same conversation you're having. Wow, it seems like it's going to be a lot, a lot of work. And so that's one of the motivating factors for us to be here today. Because hypothetically, we were just thinking this is going to take another year. So we need to start planning for how we're going to budget for fiscal year 24, 25. Let's just say hypothetically, let's just say I'm going to go hypothetically for a second. Let's say they went at light speed and made this shift by June. And then we got a message back from CSD, hey, we worked this out with the county, we're creating a new zone. And the county, in fact, said when they put the contract together for next year, hey, we're going to make this official and we're going to give the 226 straight to CSD. We would then, of course, come back to you guys with a changed recommendation because we would then say, okay, the game changed. We didn't realize it was going to happen so fast. We were prepared to budget 226, 191,000 to run a book van but the game changed, and we'll, but the recommendation today is just anticipating that we're going to run this probably for a full year from through fiscal year 24-25, just to be conservative, make sure we put that amount of money in the budget, and then we'll wait and see how fast they actually do it. So that was kind of the thinking. <laughs> were you finished, Mayor Brody? Yes, I am. I am. And I see Councilmember Kiriakou. Thank you. Uh, so just just a, a cup a couple of things that that have come up. So um, I don't think it's the intention of the CSD at this time to become their own library district. The uh, community services district that they have is imbued by the legislation that created it with library power. So they they can become a library district when other entities could not become a library district. So that's something that they could do someday. Uh, it's a long and lengthy process. You have to actually get a librarian, or like a real librarian, uh, and all that. So there's a lot to it. Um, I, I think what we're we're struggling with here a little bit is, um, you know, a lot of time has gone by, and um, I think a lot of the 
the confusion uh, related to this is because like we undertook the book fan at the very beginning of COVID. It was either like the first or second remote meeting that we did. And at the time, we didn't even have accurate population figures for Isla Vista. One of the reasons we have a report that segments out Isla Vista's population is because for years we couldn't get accurate population data, at least in terms of what was coming back to me in a feedback loop from staff, was that different people were saying different things about Isla Vista's population. Some would say it's 25,000. Others were saying it was 20,000. Some people were literally Googling Isla Vista population <laughs> and taking that number. Um, and so it, it took a while for us to actually get data that we felt like we could trust, right? Um, and then the other issue was that, you know, Isla Vista, you know, the county was working to defend the county briefly. They were trying even in lean budget years to increase the amount of per capita they were putting in. And one of the goals that they had was to try and get Isla Vista to a point where direct service that they had never really enjoyed on any kind of a sustained basis when Santa Barbara was their vendor, um, even when Santa Barbara had a book van and took it to other places like the Montecito Library, um, it wasn't coming out to Isla Vista on any kind of a sustained basis. And I think Isla Vista people were getting very frustrated with that, which was actually one of the reasons why Galita got IV um, in its zone. So there's a lot of history here, and I think what we're dealing with is Isla Vista has come to the point where they feel they're receiving enough, um, their population justifies um, enough per capita funding for them to receive direct service. And I think the challenge for us is to make sure that we're adequately conveying what that means, what full cost recovery would be in a world where you're really only financing it now with per capita funding, um, and how does that impact your ability not just to have a van driving around, but to actually have books in it and to actually have uh, well-trained people that can provide the service. Um, and for us to be able to administer it potentially as a contractor versus someone else administering it as a contractor. So I think those are all kind of thorny issues we're gonna have to have to uh, work out um, and we'll see how it goes. Do we have any public comment on this item? We do not have any public speakers in chambers nor are there any left on Zoom. Thank you. So I don't have any additional questions. I think it's clear that there's still quite a few things that are up in the air or could change. So I'm sure this is not the last um, that we will have an opportunity to talk about this topic. But I agree that I think we're a little bit in a holding pattern for a, a minute here. Um, so to deliberations, there is a recommendation to direct staff to maintain the status quo level of service. I'm willing to uh, I'm willing to support staff recommendation. I'll move that. Thank you. Is there a second? All right. Can we have a roll call vote or Can we any just discuss the motion briefly? Yes. I, I mean I'm I'm glad that we're able to maintain the level of service for Isla Vista for another year. I think they, you know, they became accustomed to that level of service in the aftermath of receiving the grant from Senator Limon, who we haven't mentioned and we should. Um, Senator Limon uh, was able to secure the funding that led to the the book van. And so I'm, I'm pleased that we're able, with the grant exhausted, to still find a way to make that happen. Because I do think as long as we have responsibility for serving an area, we should be doing everything we can to serve an area. I will also say I wish that we were directly serving Goleta residents more and 
uh, other people throughout the zone. If we're using Measure L money to fund this program, it seems to me like we really should be looking at um, look you know looking at areas throughout Goleta. I think about um, in District Four. I think about the Matilda and Elwood Canyon Road area, and in, 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 in my district, I think about Old Town. Um, I, I think every council district would probably have one or two great locations for for a stop, um, and unfortunately, that would mean spending even more money than we already are. Um, and I think we have to decide, you know, down the road, are we ready to spend whatever that, that amount of money is? And right now I just don't have the facts and I don't have enough information to support that. So I think for now, let's keep status quo. Let's keep working with the CSD. Um, let's hope that we can um, find a path to peace in our time when it comes to the Isla Vista Library. Thank you. Any other discussion on the motion? Well, I would just... Peace in our time was Neville Chamberlain. You really don't want to go there. <laughs> I would just like to say that when we, when this does come back, I'd like more budget information about what what is the real cost of mm -hmm. running the book van, um, and also, you know, more budget information about our, our whole operation. But that that in particular would be useful. And I agree with the comments that were made here. All right. Are we ready for a roll call vote? Councilmember Richards? Yes. Councilmember Kiriako? Yes. Councilmember Kasdan? Aye. Mayor Pro Tem Reyes Martin? Aye. And Mayor Perotti? Aye. All right, thank you. That takes us to council comments, and thank you, Mr. Valdez. Uh, Any council comments? There were, we did have ordinance review committee. Uh, who else? Well, I guess I'll do it then. You want to start? Yeah, as James. So the ordinance committee met and we talked about parking along Phelps and Hollister uh, and uh, the appropriate uh, sort of uh, parking that would be uh, our ordinance committee, the appropriate uh, parking for those areas since there seems to be a considerable amount of uh, RVs parking there for extended periods. And uh, we recommended for both of those uh, restricting RV, overnight RV parking in those areas along Phelps in part because of the environmental uh, impacts on the ESHA and on, uh, on Pacific Oaks uh, because of um, the sort of degradation in the neighborhood there, the, the neighbors and so forth. And that's it. Thank you. The Economic Development Standing Committee um, I know that we received, uh, we're re-energized to get back together to start implementing the Economic Development Strategic Plan, and we focused on some of the year one priorities um, with some exciting um, events and programs um, that we're planning that I'm sure we'll get more information on once those details are finalized. The only thing I'll add is the, uh, <laughs> the consultant that we were using to um, to help us, you know, get that plan developed. One of the deliverables for them was that they were going to help the, with the final phase to help implement the plan. They've had some transitions, but they're looking forward to getting back on track and they'll help us with the implementation. So that's still kind of pending. And Energy Green Issues Standing Committee. Um, yeah, well, uh, I can report on that. Uh, 
I know one of the um, things that we talked about was an EV uh, charger reach code. So similar to the energy uh, reach code that we uh, uh, passed last year by first reading um, there uh, for the building code, there's actually a, an, an a EV charger reach code where the city has the ability to go above and beyond state requirements. And so um, for new construction can require additional EV charging stations. So we looked at that. I think it may be coming back to the full council some, at some point, I, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I know that we also uh, heard uh, an update on our solar array, which was interesting because uh, after one year of operation, I think we, we generated about 96% of the energy that they were expecting it to. They're going to be making some tweaks to the, uh, to the operation of it and hopefully get that number up. Um, but also importantly that instead of uh, as expected that it would cost us a little more for the energy in the first year, we actually ended up saving $6,000 in energy costs um, in, its, in its very first year. So that was good news. Great. City Attorney report. Madam Mayor Pro Tem, I have no report. All right. Then I think we are adjourned. Thank you.